Hello and welcome to Lorebeards. Now you may have noticed we had a big mighty vote that was split between Mermidia, Volkmar the Grim, and some other topic that we've now completely forgotten about because there it was, was right a draw. It was Reichland. It was Reichland. <laughs> now I, I will admit that I'm a little sad that Reichland didn't win purely because I love talking about the provinces of the Empire. Um, but we did have a draw, so that means this week we're going to cover Volkmar the Grim, the Grand Theogenist of Sigmar, and that's going to be one heck of a topic. And then next week we're going to go on to Mermidia. Now Mermidia, for those of you who don't know out there, is a goddess of war and strategy in the Old World, primarily worshipped down in the South, and Tilia and Astalia. And it's going to be quite the stream, I think, because it's one of those goddesses that's often discussed here or there but isn't really that well known so that's going to be next week that'll be over on my channels rather than where we are today which is on the wonderful lore master of zotex channels yeah and i will say i i was pleased how like even reichland got a solid mm -hmm. like upper mm -hmm. 20s percent like it was almost split three ways uh but uh kudos to everyone for voting uh especially because even when I pointed out it was a tie and someone needed to win, everyone just decided to be an ass and keep the tie going. <laughs> Even when it got like 100 extra votes. So thanks for that. You get both, jerks. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, uh, Hammond's already um, arrived. So uh, when do Bretonian wenches go clubbing? Real night. Oh, man. Right, so, uh, <laughs> uh, right, so for, uh, those of you who don't know, I did a big stream um, last night, actually, because it was our 200th, no, our 200th, our second birthday for Inside the Rookery and our 100th um, episode. But the reason I bring that up is because um, I was all dressed up like a sort of vampire-y thing, and I go, but my makeup has made my skin feel like it's on fire today because i've got really sensitive <laughs> skin i'm just a sensitive little flower so if um you see me sitting in the background going <laughs> tell me to stop because i could not be scratching my face it's a bad thing right, right so I'll, <laughs> I'll keep an eye on it and thank you do yeah, really indeed, appreciate I, I, that. my face feels like fire ants are marching across it and just stabbing into me it's uh it's not the nicest sensation Yep. All right. Thank so, you for your donation to the Church of Sigmar. We appreciate it. Um, All right. Yes, we absolutely do. Uh, so take us in, Andy. Volkmar the Grim. So I'm going to take us back again in time, as we often like to do when we're starting off one of our little beard chats, because Volkmar the Grim to me is a character that is much more than just that model that you've seen in various magazines or played with perhaps in Total War or perhaps read about in a novel or a book. Because this is one of the characters that I have used a lot. I have played with a lot. And I've even written about when I was writing material for the role-playing game. Uh, in particular, Voltmar the Grim was, for me, the core of one of my empire armies. And yes, I did say one of my empire armies. I had multiples. Um, and the reason <laughs> being was that that war altar was, quite frankly, awesome just a few hundred points 300 and something as i recall um and it could hold a center like almost nothing else that existed in warhammer fourth edition at the time particularly given that the empire army list was the first army list to come out meaning that it was the first army got the big boost of having a whole bunch of stuff that was purpose made for it in this case volkmar the grim made his first appearance in the 4th edition army list for Warhammer. And to say that he was rock hard would be to underestimate just how good he was on the battlefield. Um, I would rate <laughs> him higher from that army list than almost any other character 
perhaps except for maybe the Supreme Patriarch, because Thyrus Gorman kicked ass and chewed gum. Um, let's just get a quick call for there from Sean. Hey, Sean, thank you very much. This is Gelt's Curse and Andy for his stance against <laughs> it. It is absolutely not. Was it, nothing was it to do with Gelt. Makeup? <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, um, oh, and one there from BioFoot as well. So, Voltmar Media walk into a bar. They're going to get it up. Hello, YouTube chat. Um, hope your day is as lovely as uh, you are all. Indeed, very lovely indeed. Thank you very much for dropping that in there, Biofoot. So, uh, Volkmar. Now, back then, Volkmar was pitched to replace the yawning, gaping hole that was left by the Enemy Within campaign for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. In Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, there was a different Grand Theogenist who was, spoiler alert, doomed to die through the course of that campaign. And Volkmar the Grim, in many respects, was their replacement at the top of the Cult of Sigmar and also their re-envisaging of the Cult of Sigmar, wherein the Enemy Within, the Cult of Sigmar, did not have the dominance that it came to have later on in later editions of Warhammer. It was just another cult in the Empire, arguably its most important. Um, the word arguably dropped in a few places, except with the Grand Theogenist, who was always positioned as not just arguably, but probably the most powerful man in the Empire because of not just his influence over the Cult of Sigmar, but because of his influence over the Emperor and all of the Electrocounts in one fashion or another. Effectively, to imagine the Grand Theogenist, the top of the Cult of Sigmar, a quick real-world equivalent is, he's the Pope. He's the Pope of Sigmar. <laughs> the Look at him that way. It's a quick way to view him. Jolly Day, Twitch chat, thank you very much, Viper. Oh, they're playing nice. How, how lovely. <laughs> yeah, it's far better than, screw you, Twitch. <laughs> so, our supreme, our supreme patriarch, no, wrong one, our grand theogenist, top of the cult of Sigmar, Volkmar the Grim, was brought in to fill up that open slot that the campaign had left and to re-establish what they thought the cult of Sigmar should be for their version of the Empire. And bluntly, the cult of Sigmar rose ascendant. There wasn't another cult in any great detail provided inside that army list the only figures that were offered were pretty much the grand theogenist and you'll find over time as the army lists expand they don't provide us with cults of ulric until the eighth edition they don't provide us with really any rules for say the cults of tal again until the eighth edition most of the other cults are pretty much pushed aside for Sigmar when it comes to the empire and this is something that was established to a degree by good old Volkmar and their first iteration of Volkmar was very much a strident Sigmarite. He was a old, staunch ally of Karl Franz the Emperor, an old, staunch ally of all the characters that they presented inside the Empire Army List, um, an older man in general, sitting around about probably his 60s, big, huge moustache, and ebullient, strong, and powerful. He was also a deep entrenched Sigmarite. So he is someone who very much believes, hardline believes in Sigmarite doctrine and the destruction of chaos. He stands as a figure who believes that the destruction of chaos is... Oh, hey, Hammond. Every time Andy scratches his face, but... <laughs> well, we're, we'll, we'll, we'll have to... 
uh, I'll we'll, we'll explain that another time. <laughs> there's there's oh. there's a lot. Every time I'm interrupted, I'm like, oh, I could scratch. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of memes from Total War, but we'll we'll teach Andy in due time. In due time. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, do I really need to be taught in due time? So, um, uh, yeah, I do. So he was presented as this staunch Sigmarite. Um, and they took the old concept that had been used frequently in the third edition of the Warhammer game of the War Altar. And the War Altar in the previous editions was generally something that was carried by four blokes with a big altar sitting in the center of it. And they marched that around. It provided you with some sort of benefit, generally leadership bonuses and similar. Um, they decided, nah, screw this. Let's just put him on a giant chariot with a War Altar pop a massive griffin behind him and not a normal looking griffin either he's just one that's sitting like that with a giant hammer on top of him without any real griffiny features that are really strong it's not the best rendition of a griffin <laughs> <laughs> looked a little bit constipated um there there may have been many jokes made about that griffin in my games club at the time um, and, oh, hey there, Viper. Thanks very much, Viper. Does Votmar believe in other gods and or believe in the existence of the race of people's people or gods? Or does, uh, uh, right, so we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah, that, um, that is a, that is a the answer is yes. We'll cover this later because we'll go through, um, because Volkmar, as it turns out, he develops and becomes a different character, um, uh, a, quite a different character. Same core, but he becomes much more intellectual as um, we'll find yeah. out a little bit later. Um, but loosely, the answer to that is yes. Um, so thanks very <laughs> much for that, Viper. That was super appreciated. Uh, so he was pop popped on this giant war altar, and he was given a huge Jade Griffin. This is, again, something that is new, created for this edition. And this Jade Griffin exuded the power of Sigmar and healed him. Um, this uh, turns in later editions to be basically just a regeneration rule. Uh, but in the earlier versions of him, at, at the end of each phase, if he wasn't dead, well, he just got all his wounds back. And yeah. that freaking rocked so i'm sure that rule was so fun to play against <laughs> <laughs> i cannot tell you how many people used to swear it actually reached the point where uh, if you knew you were going against somebody that was using the good old war altar of sigmar you took weapons that did multiple wounds so that if you did this one you were probably going to kill him because if you didn't you just never killed him and he just wandered around in that chariot kicking ass chewing gum throwing interestingly spells so in our first iteration of volkmar the grim he uses magic now he doesn't use it personally it's not he has any magic in fact he has none which is something that will change later as we move into battle prayers and similar at mm -hmm. the beginning of our versions of volkmar volkmar has no magic in the slightest no divine magic no ability to cast spells in many respects this matches the lore that was being presented at the time in the novels where all of the priests were not hammer wielding fire covered priests in the slightest they were just mundane people who believed in the gods it was the artifacts mm -hmm. and the presence of the gods that brought power not necessarily their prayers although the fancy roleplay game at the time had rules for clerics that used magic but they were rare super super rare and Voltmar the grim to a degree repeated this the altar though it brought magic and it used the standard winds of magic rules it used spells spells that we know and love from the various arcane magics that we are all aware of from the different winds of magic go check our winds of magic stream if you want to know more about that because we covered the different winds i think pretty much in depth 
Um, so he originally used a variety of uh, different spells that he could fling across the battlefield through his prayers, but it was the altar itself that empowered that, not him. He also had himself um, a really annoying horn. Um, it was the Horn of Sigismund, um, named after one of the Sigismund emperors. I say one of them because there's at least five that I'm aware of. Um, Sigismund the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, uh, throughout various points of time. The very first Sigismund being Sigismund the Conqueror seems likely it might be him. Um, yeah, Sigismund the Conqueror. There's a oh. funny note that if you so I was reading through all the different editions and yep. the different editions disagree which Sigismund it was. Because there's one that specifically talks about him dying in the Greenskin Siege. And then there's another one that talks about oh, the only thing they all agree on is that he helped the dwarves in a fight and they gave him the horn. But which so, Sigismund's ones changes from edition to edition? I personally don't think it's Sigismund the first because Sigismund the Conqueror never defended against the Greenskin invasion. Um, and if anything, Sigismund the Conqueror was the opposite. He went out to the borders and extended them beyond Sigmar's original empire. He's somewhat famous for going against standard Sigmarite doctrine, which was defend our borders, the borders of Sigmar. Oops, see before Ed. Hey, hi there. Um, what is origin of Ma uh, Volkmar's magnificent moustache? The original miniature designer. <laughs> yeah, the, the first person that imagined, I, I feel like that's almost what he started with. He was like, yes, he's going to be bald and he's going to have a huge mustache. And then he built um, everything fact, else out from there. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if it was actually the original art, which was a Wayne England piece, um, as I recall. The original art has um, the griffin sitting <laughs> yeah. up so, and then underneath it, there's the Grand Theogenist in exactly the same pose. I'd be interested to know which came first, whether it was the miniature or whether it was the art. Um, I'm not sure which came first. I'm not sure who did the sculpt either. I'll check that one for later. Anyway, um, he had this horn, the horn of Sigismund, and it probably wasn't Sigismund the first, but it doesn't really matter which Sigismund it was. When that horn is bellowed, hey there, Vipers, Sigman. Sig my, fa <laughs> <laughs> my favorite sister of battle. <laughs> Thanks, Vesper. <laughs> um, when that horn is bellowed, it causes terror in all enemies that are charged. And when you're being charged by a chariot that is already doing D6 plus two uh, attacks, which is what it used to do in the old version of the uh, game because it had a little size in it as well, it literally sucked. Um, unlike the normal terror rules back then, it didn't cause terror and everything within eight inches, for those of you who ruled Warhammer fans like me, but it did cause it on the unit attack. And typically, um, the... Uh, I mean, bluntly, that that charge sucked. Um, just sucked. Um, just sucked. He was most powerful in smaller battles because he was nigh on impregnable in terms of easy kills. And in those smaller battles, he didn't have to face against giant characters stacked with magic items. It was a bit hero hammer both back in fourth edition. Um, so cut a long story short, he had himself uh, a big hammer. He had himself his big horn. He had himself his big griffin. His big G griffin. And he was, loosely speaking, a staunch, anti-chaos, hard Sigmar worshipping and advising Grand Theogenist, who was also, politically speaking, aimed as one of the most important, not just um, uh, men, but actually, as I recall, his first description is actually one of the most important religious figures in the Empire as well. Um, so he's not quite pitched as strong as he will be later on pitched, where when we hit ourselves into the 6th edition he um, and into the 8th later, he moves from simply being one of to the mm. 
yeah. as they shift the power of the Cult of Sigmar um, up another notch and another notch. You'll find over each edition, Sigmar gains more and more prevalence. The Empire Army, instead of just having um, Sigmar on banners and similar, starts having Sigmar priests throughout it, um, where in previous editions it just did not have that. Um, Sigmar becomes more and more important, but at this point, our Grand Theogenist, our Volkmar of the Grimm, is one of the most important people in the Empire. Um, this, as a nice final point in this version of him, stands in slight contradiction to what we had earlier in the role-playing game where the Grand Theogenist position was first introduced, where the Grand Theogenist position was very much introduced almost like the Pope of the Empire. Um, and he was given almost, almost almost complete authority in terms of the amount of power he had, significantly more than the emperor. Now, we often think of the empire with the emperor being, you know, he's the emperor, he's the most important figure. But in the role-play game, the emperor was actually, in many respects, less powerful than the Electra Counts. The Electra Counts installed them, and they generally always chose the weakest among them to ensure that they could have uh, their own autonomy. To, to ensure that the emperor could not do anything to them. So they chose a relatively weak one, hopefully someone who would never stand against them. Um, and the Grand Theogenist, who was advising the emperor and the rest of the uh, various Electra Counts, was in many respects much more powerful than him because of this. So they uh, changed that. They made him slightly less powerful in terms of the politics, but massively more powerful in terms of the ability to go down onto a battlefield, kick ass, chew gum, take names, and just generally hit people with hammers. Because, you know, it was Warhammer. The game of fantasy battles, not the game of fantasy politics. So he very much um, represented the new ideal for the direction that they were taking the Empire during the fourth edition time. Where would you like to go to next if I turn back to my good friend? Joseph? So, uh, I, I think the best place to go from there is to kind of go into what Volkmar has kind of transformed into, which has a lot of very strong ties back to that, but there have been some really interesting shifts in a number of places. Um, the first of all being that, uh, funny enough, I think Volkmar in his later... So, um, older lore, despite the fact that it all is supposed to kind of take place around the same time, like the lore doesn't really advance between editions. It's usually around the same time period where until they had the whole thing with the Storm of Chaos where they actually kind of kicked it forward, but then they immediately brought it back. Um, we're like, never mind, we didn't want to do that. Five um, years or so, <laughs> yeah. But uh, one of the things that's interesting about Volkmar is that he kind of got progressively older, um, as the different editions went through. Where in the older editions, he's while he's an older man, he still is uh young enough that it's like reasonable to expect him out on the battlefield and for him to kind of still have a lot of that mean old man strength and be shouting at the height of his voice and stuff like that. Whereas in the later editions, uh, particularly when you get to 7th and 8th, he, his hair goes is completely white, and he mm -hmm. is significantly older. Um, and almost kind of more, he's much more of a, um, I don't want to say frail, but he's frailer than you might expect him based on his what he's capable of. And it goes through um, some explanation that it is his faith and of course the war altar itself that makes him as powerful as he is uh where he gets like ludicrously strong um but that without his faith um yeah, yeah should something happen to that he's he's quite like he's more like in his 70s um yeah. 
at this point. Uh, but Volkmar, although we're going to have a lot of things to talk about him, interesting a lot. He's kind of one of those characters where we don't really have a lot on his life story um, as far as where he comes from. Um, like he's been explored in a lot of he's shown up in quite a few different books um, from like various background books like the Libra Chaotica. He shows up in the Dreadfleet novels. He shows up or novel. Uh, he shows up, of course, in the Warhammer Fantasy roleplay game uh, in yep. the new fourth edition stuff. He makes an appearance if you pick up the Altdorf book. Um, but a lot of this stuff doesn't go super in depth to like his childhood or anything that kind of leads across his life. Um, he's kind of one of those characters where you could probably make some pretty accurate guesses based on how games workshop like to do things. Um, like I would probably say it's fair to guess that he is either a orphan or direct descendant, uh, of someone already in the clergy, um, and was raised by the church. Um, and has just been there his entire life, just working his way up uh, through the echelons. But one of the things that's very, very interesting of Volkmar that I enjoyed about his recent kind of stuff in fourth edition was one of the things they lean on very heavily is that Volkmar, kind of like Andy said, in some ways represents like classic, awesome version of Sigmarism, where Volkmar does not care about politics. Um, which is, I, I think, kind of an interesting place to start with him to the point that it actually kind of hurts him in a lot of the ways. Um, one of the things they explore a lot in the 7th and 8th edition stuff, and in the which this ties into the Storm of Chaos, which we'll come back to in a second, is that Volkmar cares so little about politics that he refuses to get involved. Um, he doesn't like to debate anybody. He doesn't like to, if somebody's like out on the street talking shit about him or spreading rumors about him, they're saying like he's evil or he's weak or he's secretly a chaos cultist or any of those other things. He never does anything to like put down those rumors. He ignores them and just continues about his work because he very staunchly believes that action will serve as his words rather than him actually going out and giving like speeches or debating people, um, which kind of is a detriment to him in some ways um i actually think it kind of threatens his position in some very interesting ways that he cares so little about those politics which is very different to a character we'll talk about in a moment which is his predecessor um that he really and truly kind of has a very mysterious air about him because he's so obsessed and focused on other things that he hey, refuses to deal with like what he considers lesser ideas uh, is there any time in imperial history where the Grand Theogenist and Emperor conf uh, conflict over power like the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor are in history? Oh, yeah. Yeah. All oh, the time. yeah. Um, um, so uh, very loosely, without going into a great deal of um, detail, because it's not, strictly speaking, Volkmar um, related, um, the Emperor is not always, contrary to what many people expect, centered in Altdorf. Indeed, it often wasn't. And Altdorf is the center of the cult of Sigmar. There are, the emperor has been spotting around various imperial captain, capitals at various points. And often they were staunchly, in some sometimes, even staunchly anti-Sigmar. Um, you got to remember that the empire fractured completely into two empires and then three empires, only one of which was uh, properly supported by the Grand Theogenist. And that's because the other emperor, in some cases, 
arguably the legitimate one, had fallen out with the cult of Sigmar. So was there issues in the past? Massive ones. It, came, it fell to civil war. Armies crashing across the empire about their disagreements concerning religious matters, concerning political matters. And it's one of the things that Magnus the Pious, when he rebound the empire back together, really fought hard to stop and one of the ways he did that was to establish the grand conclave and the grand conclave is when the heads of the cults of all of the major cults of the empire get together with the emperor and they sit down and they hash out shit every so many years to ensure that we don't get the big religious schisms that happened previously so the answer to that is yes hey laughing yeah. god uh, Volkmar looks at Kostal's style and scoffs, uh, but there's a good reason for that in that Volkmar really, and the cult of Sigmar cares much more about having that image of being like a representation. They're supposed to lead by example. They're supposed to be the best, uh, foot forward to inspire you, uh, to lead a good life. According to Sigmarite doctrines, Kostalton very purposefully portrays himself as a bit of a raving madman because he wants to convince people that he's one of the regular folk. He's like you. He's struggling. He's fighting through being destitute and kind of crazed and finding faith in suffering and finding strength through suffering. Now, Kostaltin is a lot more clever than he initially appears because he's doing that on purpose, but there's they have very different ways they're trying to inspire people, which is why they have such difference in styles. And thanks very much, Viper Wolf. Doesn't he have three votes for the Emperor? Strictly no, but yes. Um, in that the Grand Theogenist um, has one vote for voting a new Emperor should the previous Emperor die, as do two Arch Lectors who are directly underneath his control, but they did not always historically vote with the Supreme Patriarch, there has been, it's not Supreme Patriarch, pardon me, the Grand Theogenist. There has been issues in the past where there have been splits in the cult as well. There is not one gigantic uniform block. But loosely speaking, after Magnus the Pious, he installed three votes for the cult of Sigmar for a variety of reasons, and he installed one vote for the cult of Ulrich. That could have landed very differently. The cult of Tal could have had votes. One was even rumored to go to the cult of Renald, but in the end, that's where it split. Um, uh, Sam, uh, curious how Volkmar leads the cult of imperial unity yet doesn't give an electoral vote to the other cults. Funny that, um, so it isn't his decision, yeah. Uh, loosely speaking, that was not his decision, it was Magnus's. This is politics. Um, the incumbent emperor has his own vote, each electric counts have got their own vote. The cult of Sigmar has three votes, and the cult of Ulrich has one. And for historical reasons, they were put in place for. Magnus's reasons, not for the cult of Sigmar's. Now, did it la land very well for the cult of Sigmar? Yes. When Volkmar becomes Grand Theogenist, does he politic for a different setup? No, he's not a politician. And if he was, he probably would not be politicking. Uh, politicking? Didn't come out quite right there. That phrasing was a bit wrong. But really, he wouldn't be politicking to try and change things so that Sigmar was weaker. That seems pretty unlikely for a politician. So loosely... Um, whilst you could argue that there's some hypocrisy here, I would generally say that is not his fault. It isn't necessarily the fault of those behind him, but his cult very much thinks it is the right way for things to be. Yeah. So uh, kind of leaning more into uh, really delving into Volkmar as a political figure in that Volkmar is someone who very strongly, like 
he is hard he is the hardest believer in sigmar you will ever see to the point that he actually has a very unique perspective on sigmarism which we'll get into in a minute but this is what leads him so far away from politics is that volkmar often tends to view the scheming and the political backstabbing all this stuff as being detrimental to unity to the way the empire is supposed to act that the empire is supposed to be out about marching out and hitting chaos in the face with a hammer and he is obsessed with trying to discover the best way to accomplish that and doesn't really give a damn about a lot of the other details behind that. He passes that down to the Ark Lectors and puts the two of them in charge of it, which the two Ark Lectors are, what, how loyal they are to Volkmar in particular is debatable. Um, I would say that one of them is much more pro-Volkmar than the other. Um, it's also fair to say that they change. Um, I don't just mean that one is changed and becomes a new one. I mean different versions of the lore have completely different arch lectures in place. Um, I I'd like to bring up one other detail about him before we get uh, lost in our next versions of him, because there's one detail that's brought out with some of the later books um, that he was a capitular before he became Grand Theogenist. And it's worth discussing what a capitular is, because mm. it will speak to um, where he came from. The Cult of Sigmar has an exceedingly complex set of different titles. And I do mean a lot of different types. Good timing there, uh, Viper. Any stories of Otmar dealing with the cult of Mor or others? Um, directly, as in beyond just speaking about it, I can't think of any particular stories that are about him dealing with the the other cults specifically beyond just no, the he, stuff. Yeah, he has some thoughts about them, which yeah, we'll get into, totally. but there's there's no like... There's no like black library novel about a great with him, which would be really yeah. cool. Um, I would love someone to write that. Um, that yeah, would be cool. That would have been a cool like two pager or something in the Tome of Salvation yeah. would have been all the different a, a grand conclave conversations. So, anyway, cut a long story short. At the very top of the cult of Sigmar, we have the Grand Theogenist. He's our Pope equivalent. Underneath him, you've got a group of people who can elect in the new the next Grand Theogenist. These include the Arch Lectors and the Lectors and Capitulars. They all have different jobs. Lectors are uh, responsible for a lectoric. That's a large part of the empire that matches directly to the empire that Sigmar installed. And then you've got the arch lectors who are uh, responsible for two of the most important temples inside the empire, one of which is actually quite new, but let's just not talk about that. <laughs> the capitulars, um, they're slightly different. The capitulars all lead their own holy order. And this holy order is responsible for one of the most holy sites to Sigmar. I'll give two examples of this so you can go, oh, I see what you mean. One is the last temple of Skoranarak. So there's an entire order that is responsible for looking after a giant claw of a dragon ogre. Um, and they are responsible for looking after this because Sigmar slew the thing with his big mighty hammer. We discussed this in our dragon ogres mm. uh, that a, few, a wee while back and there is a capitular down there who is responsible for an order of sigmarite monks who are in turn responsible for looking after this holy site and the pilgrimage point similarly up in uh middenheim we've got another high capitular he's relatively famous Vil uh, Werner stoltz uh the high capitular up there is responsible for looking after the flame of ulrich which sigmar himself passed through now the ulricans don't let him anywhere near it but that's not the point. That's his religious duty. He has an entire order of, uh, again, warrior priests who are there to look after the great silver flame up in the north. They never get anywhere near it, but that's their job. 
So high capitulars, capitulars, arch lectors and lectors, they all look after, uh, pardon me, vote for the next Grand Theogenist. Volkmar the Grim was one of the capitulars, um, sometimes referred to as capitals by people who don't necessarily uh, copy and paste very well um, as they try <laughs> to use the various titles. Um, and uh, that meant that he was responsible for an entire order before he moved in. So he's someone that we know at this point already is responsible for a great holy shrine of Sigmar. We don't know which one. Um, he is responsible for leading the entire order, and he spoke directly to and was only um, uh, only received orders from the Grand Theogenist. There was no one above him except for the Grand Theogenist. Now, you might immediately go, Grand Theogenist, isn't there an arch lecture in between? Well, the Grand Theogenist is also an arch lecture. The Grand Theogenist mm. has got a lot of titles. The, all the lectorics of Sigmar are split into three. One each one is uh, organized by an arch lector, and one of the arch lectors is also the Grand Theogenist, uh, who works from Altdorf. Um, and he spoke directly to the Grand Theogenist, which means we know he worked in or around uh, Reichland into parts of uh, southern Middenland, that area somewhere, and possibly even over into Marienburg, because as far as the Cult of Sigmar is concerned. Marienburg is a part of the empire, regardless of whether it actually claims it is or not. Um, uh, the electoric of Marienburg is part of their uh, diocese. So, cut a long story short, he had a special holy order that was his before eventually he was voted in to become the next Grand Theogenist. It's a, it's a little detail, but it gives you an idea that he was someone who was already used to power, someone who was already used to speaking directly to power, as in the previous Grand Theogenist. Mm. And he was someone that would have been well known by the cult of Sigmar as a whole. So when they voted him in, who he is, what he represents, and his political standpoint was what the other Sigmarites voted for, for their next Grand Theogenist. So it also speaks to, to a degree, what the cult of Sigmar was after all the troubles that are dealt with during the course of the Enemy Within campaign in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Yes. Um, so one thing, if you're comfortable talking about it, would you be uh, able to talk a little bit about Yori, his um, predecessor? Uh, there, he's um, He's got different versions of him, which makes him particularly difficult. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, he, by the time he's generally used in the... Uh, <laughs> I mean, there, there's some versions of him which don't make a great deal of sense as well, which I'm, I'm not frightfully interested in diving into because it just makes him a contradictory figure. But he was very old by the time he died. Um, and uh, according to some, he was quite vital in his youth. According to others, he was a political appointment. According to other versions, he was put there purely as almost a snub to the north and the cults of Ulrich. Um, there are many different versions of what Yori was beforehand. And I'm, I mean, it's difficult to pin down as a single figure, largely because he is never really tackled in the battle game. And when we're, um, when we were, when we're writing for, say, for example, any of the various books, our grounding point where we draw our first source of information is always the most recent edition of the battle game, 8th edition in this case. If there's nothing in 8th edition about the particular thing, we then just go back in editions, and then we go over to the role-playing game or some of the licensed game for ideas, not necessarily for hard facts. Um, and we then try to make it all work. If you're a writer like me, you try to make it all work. You do your best to try and make all sources make as most sense as they possibly can. Other writers just go, I, I'm, I'm going to ignore it all because that's too much like research and I'll just work from the battle game that I'm given and that's it. 
Um, and Jory is given pretty much nothing there. It's 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 almost devoid, meaning that different versions of him popped up again and again. And I find him personally a somewhat frustrating character. That's fair. So the only things I'll say about him uh, to kind of delve into Volkmar's history a little bit is, and granted, this is from the newest version of the Enemy Within. So older versions are very well diff- just going to be different. Um, but the more recent are. version, the the <laughs> big the big walkaways that I got about Yori is that uh, Grant Theodore's Yori. I know he's not the first Yori. He's like Yori the sixth or you're the 10th yeah, or something but uh, um, just before we do that there's one thing that's worth mentioning um because it's uh going to be easily forgotten and i'll forget to mention it later his name his name wasn't originally yori and volkmar's name wasn't originally volkmar the grim there's um uh an important part here that was originally installed by the hmm. um by the role-playing game which was that all grand theogenists take a dwarf name in respect to the dwarves and everything that they brought to Sigmar. And if you know Sigmar's long history, you'll understand why him being a devonger, a dwarf friend, and the relationship between the dwarves and the cult of Sigmar is pretty much like this. They're very, very, very close to each other. And if you're listening to that on a podcast later, I just went big, huge cross fingers. Pretty much like this. They're very, very close. However, Volkmar the Grim popped up, and he didn't have, Volkmar is not a dwarf name. So when I was writing the Tome of Salvation, we fixed that, um, and we added a small detail as to exactly how the naming of Grand Theogenists work. And it wasn't just that they took a dwarf name, it's they took a dwarf name or a dwarf epithet. Grim is a Kazalid word. Um, so he was Volkmar the Grim. So he took the Grim as his particular epithet. And that neatly tidied it all up so that we no longer had any lore, uh, let's say, issues. One of the um, great difficulties of different writers is that they often don't look into the past and ensure that the things that they're creating match that. And someone like me comes along and tries to patch it all up because I can't help myself. So in this case, <laughs> our current version of um, Grand Theogenist naming is that they take a dwarf name or epithet. So he moved from being Volkmar von Hindenstern. Um, he's a noble. That's something else. We uh, oh yeah, he's a von Hindenstern. So there we that, go. That's there we go. That, see, that's um, what I was digging for. There we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I should have mentioned that earlier. So he's a von Hindenstern. He is a noble. He's noble born. Um, and uh, Hindensterns, where I believe they're Southern Midland. I'd have to double check that because um, I'm pretty sure we grounded them there. Doesn't matter exactly where it is, um, but it would say to which um order he's in that would almost certainly put him in the order by Karaberg. Live on stream. Um <laughs> anyway, he's a von Hindenstern. When he gets voted in, he chooses his epithet in the same way that in the real world the Pope will take on their name, which is a statement for what sort of Grand Theogenist he wants to be or Pope they want to be in the real world, whether you're going to call yourself innocent or whether you're going to call yourself John or whether you're going to call yourself something completely different. In this case, it's different dwarven kings. And Snorri, for example, would be a very powerful one. Yori, arguably less powerful, um, depending on uh, exactly what. The Grim, we're now talking about speaking directly to Grimner himself. There's lots of different ways that we can um, interpret that. Now I'm going to bring up our little comment here before I get lost. Oh, I really want to scratch my face. So, do the Empire Dwarves worship Sigmar? Mm, no. Mm. Dwarves, in general, do um, ancestor worship. Sigmar is not their ancestor. Do they respect Sigmar? Yes. 
because he is the great ancestor that formed the empire. You'll find that the empire as a whole is basically just a replication of the high king and the kings of the various holds, the emperor and the, uh, the electric counts beneath them. In fact, almost all of the empire is modeled upon um, the dwarven king kingdom, so to speak, beforehand. And the dwarves fit in surprisingly well because of this. And uh, the expats, if you want, or indeed even dwarves who have completely naturalized, never really lose who they are. And they are, generally speaking, ancestor worshippers but that doesn't mean that individuals won't go beyond the standard um and see before end votmar's mustache stronger than thorgrim's beard i don't think anything can be stronger than thorgrim's beard no well maybe perhaps only the beard of grobmerdal himself oh actually <laughs> kurt helborg kurt helborg that is he that does is have a the king of all mustaches. um in fact i might give it to kurt helborg He's the Reichsmarshal, for those of you who don't know out there. He's effectively the supreme general of all the armies of the Empire. And he is, of course, a close mate of Volkmar the Grim. Um, does Volkmar love his moustache or Sigmar more? Do Boo! <laughs> anyway, thanks for that, Hammond, and thanks CB4 and Viper Wolf. So, okay, um, so that actually does answer it does. for us of that Volkmar was raised a noble. He was raised, yeah. He was he was a noble, and um, which means he was uh, raised in power and used to power and used to doing his own thing, which I think does speak to how he then moves on as he's Grand Theogenes, because he becomes, I would argue, exceedingly scholarly. But he's looking for one thing in particular, as we'll discuss as we move on to what happened during the Storm of Chaos. Hey, Jonathan, thank you very much. Uh, as an empire, as an empire. Oh, go for it. Go <laughs> Warhammer Fantasy battle player. My biggest disappointments was how none of the non-Ulrican religious knightly orders had rules. What rules would you give each knight religious knightly order to make them unique? So, Jonathan, I'm going to cheat here um, and say that if you go check out uh, Wolfram 4th edition has a little bit of in up in arms, but if you especially go back to 2nd edition and kick around a little bit, you can find a lot of awesome stuff between like the Tome of Salvation um the night stark masters um and a couple of the books that focus on the specific orders um where you get things like how of course you know the ulricans are very unique and that they don't wear helmets and they carry big cavalry hammers knights of the blazing sun i think total war did a fine job with going with the idea it, that it's worth also saying that um the knights of the blazing sun are in uh fourth edition too you'll find yes. it wasn't just the ulricans back then the myrmidians were called out um and in i think fifth or is it sixth I can't remember. Oh, sorry, I was talking bank. Wolf Rip, not <laughs> Fantasy yeah. Battle. Gotcha. Uh, um, yeah. Oh, but in Fantasy I'll, Battle, you they all had different, they had the same rules. I was actually looking at it. Um, it was just that you could only take one of each. Um, but there was a Knightly Orders PDF that was released um, that provided you with a bunch of special rules. For example, the Varenian Knights were the Knights of Everlasting Light. They were particularly accident prone. Um, there's a variety of rules out there if you want to go look for them. So, yes, they do exist. They were originally written, I believe, in White Dwarf. Was it Space McCourt that did those? I can't remember who did the original writing for those. Um, but uh, that's um, the Knightly Order PDF. It'll be out there somewhere, I imagine, on the internet. Um, you could probably go buy yourself a copy on, I don't know. You could probably just, you could probably yeah, just find eBay or it something. if it's that old. Yeah, it'll, be, um, uh, it'll be out there somewhere, but uh, loosely speaking, I agree 
um, the uh, the reason for that is because it's expensive to make lots of different models, or at least it was when they were metal. Um, mm. And the night the the Knights of the Blazing Sun, the Knights of the White Wolf, the uh, Reichsguard, there was quite a lot of different knightly units made back in the fourth edition. And then as we moved up into the next edition, they just all got synthesized together into a single knightly order set of rules. Um, they split out again at various points during the course of the editions. Um, but you're right, they never really moved much beyond Sigmar or Ulrich. Yeah, I, I would always recommend the role play game if you're looking for like things that make them all unique and stuff because they did a very good job of that. Of like, you find really cool shit. Um, between like, uh, for instance, like the Knights of More versus the Knights of Tall versus the Knights of Sigmar versus Ulrich versus Verena versus Mermidia. Like, they're yeah, you end up finding a lot of really fascinating differences in fighting styles. We wrote and quite choices. a lot of them into the Tome of Salvation. So, um, yeah. uh, one of the jobs there was to collect. Uh, collate every single knightly order that had ever been created by Games Workshop, and it turned out, but um, even back then, we're talking what 2007, 2008, somewhere around there. Can't remember when that book was released. It must be 2007. I was writing it, um, but even back then, there was about 50 orders. There was a lot of them, um, and collating all of those uh, it proved to be uh, an exercise in fun. But when we found out a good third of those were secular, weren't really for the book we were writing. Um, yeah. So. Um, I tried to make sure a good chunk of those were mentioned inside the book and some of them were given special rules. But yeah, you are spot on for fantasy battle, kind of missing. Hey, Viper, we worship ancestors, except for that human one who literally became a god. It's not that they worship ancestors. They worship their ancestors. Yeah. Let's just make it, sure that that is as grounded in as you can about get. your ancestors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I mean, Sigmar may be great and all, but he's your ancestor. And the things he did were quite extraordinary. But he's your ancestor, and of course, they think that you should worship him because he is their ancestor. So definitely, um, but I think that's worth making clear. But very for that, that's yes, there, for that yeah, one. A hilarious thing we'll get into that in a bit. Um, what is Andy's favorite knightly order? Ooh. Oh, yours. You can do yours uh, first. And uh, my, my, mine's Knights of the Raven. Knights of the Raven, fun one. Um, okay, so. Um, I've got lots of favorite nightly orders because I've written so many of them that each yeah, one, one ends up. Whenever I'm writing one, it tends to be my favorite. Who's so your favorite child? That makes it tougher. <laughs> um, but if we're just going for religious ones, let's just go for uh, Sigmarite ones since it's a Sigmarite day. It'd probably be the Knights of the Bleeding Heart because um, I wrote a good chunk about those and I really enjoyed them. Um, the Knights Griffin are also fun. That's the ones that guard the uh, High Temple, the High Cathedral, actually, in Altdorf. Um, and are directly associated with the Jade Griffin as well. Um, so maybe the Knights Griffin, quite like those. The Knights of Bleeding Heart are a lot of fun. Adrian Hoven, their Grandmaster, um, he got originally picked up in, uh, and named in one of the old novels, and he got given stats of various types over the course of the different orders. Um, I have lots of favorites, though. It's very difficult to choose an individual one. Yes, thank you for the super chat. So back to Volkmar. Yeah, super appreciated. Um, so one of the things that's very interesting as well that we know about Volkmar's past, which is kind of where we're at right now, is that mm. Volkmar was a full-on warrior priest at some point in his history. He fought a lot. Because one of the things that's pointed out that was exceptional about Volkmar coming up to the position of Grand Theogenes, Knights of the Golden Mask. <laughs> uh, thank you, Hammond. That's all I can say to that. For those of you <laughs> listening, you have no idea what sort of gesture I'm making at the screen. <laughs> uh, yeah i'm sure you'll never figure it out um but um one of the things that's uh very interesting is that one of the points that's very heavily kind of leaned on talked about is there was 
a while where the original Grand Theog uh, thought uh, Theogenist seemed to uh, like Johann Hellstrom seemed to have been more. They were like full-on warrior priests who ended up kind of taking over the cult and becoming its head leaders, but they were fighters. But as the centuries wore on, it became much more of a political position, and there started Absolutely. to be less and less Grand Theogenists who had actually participated on battlefields um, and would no longer take to the battlefield once they became Grand Theogenists. Indeed, this becomes a central story point um, uh, for many of the, I wouldn't say many, but some of the novels where they focus in on the warrior priest aspect of Sigmar and how it doesn't take to politics and thus never really reaches the top of the cult in comparison to the political preachy order of the torch version of Sigmarism, where they might teach others how to fight, but they themselves are not really warrior priests. And it's fair to say that almost all Grand Theogenists have come from the Order of the Torch. Now, if you don't know your different orders, very briefly, the Order of the Torch are your talking priests. They're the ones that stand up in pulpits and they gather everybody in the local uh, community to a throng named after the Dwarven throngs. Throngs that happen every single Festag. And they talk about all the lessons of Sigmar and the things that happen in his life and things you should and shouldn't do. They're their classic preachers. They also lead local communities in a variety of militia building. So they'll build militias to defend against possible incursions of various types, be it greenskins or beastmen from forest or whatever else that may be. They build um, free bands um, and they also train uh, people to protect their temples. They might be hammer bearers or sword bearers. There's different types. Mm. Um, and these priests, while they may be good leaders, and in some cases, very good leaders, they are not necessarily warriors. They may, for example, uh, be in command of training all of the locals, but they might not be doing that themselves. They might have somebody who is their master of arms equivalent. Warrior priests, as they make their way around, tend to be itinerant, moving from community to community. So they arrive in at a local community. They'll be the ones that are leading the teaching for fighting with a high priest sitting over them going, yes, you do that. Well done. Good job. <laughs> Marvelous. It's the high priest who's most likely to become the next lector or arch lector or grand theogenist. Never the warrior priest, because the ones who really get anywhere tend to die anyway on a battlefield somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And this becomes one of the primary schisms with Luther Huss later on, who has his own brand of Sigmarism. And it's also, in terms of his own personal position, a warrior priest as well. Um, and Volkmar the Grimm quite clearly comes from a very different tradition to all the previous... Uh, not all, but good chunks of the previous um, uh, heads of the cult of Sigmar. So, yeah, he represents something quite a bit different. Yeah. So Volkmar coming in was a big move moment for a lot of the cult of Sigmar in that, especially compared to his predecessor, Yori. Yori was very much Order of the Torch. Uh, Helmorg. Greasus's gut. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's Greasus's gut. I... <laughs> I, it's it's marvelous, but it's hard to do justice. Some artworks have done a great job, like his Total War version. I'm, I wish he was fatter in Total War. Um, he's okay, I do too. but I wish he was much bigger and fatter. Um, anyway, um, one of the Thanks things... Uh, so, Volkmar brings a very interesting perspective in that he is an old warrior priest, and it shows in that he is... Whenever Volkmar is described physically, he is always described very much as someone you could tell used to fight used to be huge. And Have you ever bound. seen J.K. Simmons um, and where he is today? 
Okay, um, then that's probably a good model for what Voltmar is oh. in his later years. Um, J.K. Gave... Simmons, when he was younger, um, did not have the bulk that he has today. But a few years ago, um, he started doing a lot of weight training, and he did it for health reasons. And the benefits for him have been extraordinary. And if you see him nowadays, he is stacked. Um, so him with a giant moustache, and you're already in good Volkmar territory. All right, you heard it here from Andy first. Live-action Warhammer J.K. Simmons will be Volkmar the Grim. It'd be marvelous. <laughs> but uh, in any event, Volkmar, um, because of this perspective that he brings in, that is a very likely why he has such an intolerance for a lot of the politics, which is something you'll see a lot in the Black Library novels um, and various army books, is you'll have warrior priest characters who have been in the mud who've actually fought the forces of chaos. They've killed demons. They have fought cultists. They've dealt with witch hunters, the good and the bad. They've dealt with the other cults. They tend to show up in these political situations and despise the individuals they have to work with, who are often described as fat, greedy, arrogant individuals who are very good at understanding political points, are very scheming individuals, and many of whom care more about building their own wealth and fortune or building their own power instead of doing, you know, administering to the people or leading the fight against chaos or any of the other many tasks that they should technically be charged with. And for Volkmar in particular, he has, this is something that's actually changed a little bit about him in the very last edition that got released, but he was obsessed with chaos like mm -hmm. almost dangerously obsessed with chaos. Yeah, it, it's become um, uh, very much the modern version, so to speak, of what Voltmar becomes. And in some respects, I would lay some of that down to what was done in the Libra Chaotica, where he was given a voice. Um, and that voice then slowly ebbed and pardon me, seeped into um, his Warhammer version. If you take a look at the 8th edition version of Volkmar uh, the Grim, he is spending significant amount of his time inside libraries, pursuing ancient forgotten lore, desperately seeking out information about how the chaos gods themselves can be stopped. He's not just interested in doing his job anymore. If he was doing his job, he would be busy 24-7 administering to his cult. You could argue that he is a grand theogenist in absentia. He's not doing his job mm. properly. He's obsessed. He is actually obsessed. And as it comes out later, if you take a look at the version of the Grand Theogenist that comes into the Storm of Chaos, that obsession leads to ultimately his death. He makes an enormous error because he starts hunting down one of the greatest, let's say, myths of the Warhammer world. And that's the tension between the ever-chosen on one side and the champion of light on the other. Someone that the gods imbue with great power to face off against the chaos gods. And he comes to the conclusion that it's him. Yeah, so one of the things about Volkmar is that, like Andy said, um, he is obsessed with research. And it, the thing about Warhammer is that knowledge often comes at a price. Um, mm. You don't just get to know things and you're like, okay, I know that now I can walk away from it. There is often a, a form of unique stress that can come with many forms of knowledge that will very progressively lead you to insanity or down similar types of routes. You know, very kind of like, um, um, oh my God, the dude that made Cthulhu, whose name I can't remember all of a sudden. Um, I, I Lovecraft. 
yeah, very Lovecraftian almost in a sense. And chaos in particular has that effect on a lot of people, but so do many yeah. other forms of knowledge. It's not just chaos. If you're dealing with the writings of Nagash or uh, any other like notable cults, there can be influences on you. And yeah. Volkmar is a very, very willful person uh, who is, because of that, very resistant to a lot of these things. But he literally spends days not sleeping, not eating, He's literally, it's just his sheer willpower keeping him going, locked up in libraries that he only has access to because he's the Grand Theogenist and nobody can tell him no um, because other people are not allowed to read those things because they know it will corrupt you. They know it's going to have bad effects on you, but he does it anyway because he's obsessed with finding the answer. And it's because in a lot of his earlier readings, he kind of figures out the end times is coming and he knows it's coming. It's not like some characters who... Uh, like oh end times happens every once in a while like he is utterly convinced that this is it so you can almost see how he got himself elected um because if we're talking about uh a group of exceedingly powerful political priests of sigmar getting together and a couple of priestesses most likely although got, judging by warhammer's standard use of the cult of sigmar they often forget that women exist um, but we've got ourselves a host of capitulars um, and lectors getting together to vote for someone, and they vote for someone that they know will not tell them what to do because he's too busy doing his own fucking thing. When he was off doing his high capitular duty at whichever uh, order he was with, he was already known for his obsessions, clearly, because he had them. Um, and that is the person they voted in, presumably to maintain their own freedoms because everybody votes for what's best for them and if they can't get in themselves let's vote for someone that allows their own freedom so you can see how they they shifted gears for the cult the politician didn't win this day but the politicians themselves did and we end up with a cult of sigmar with volkmar who is largely a great mate of some influential figures um he's all about going out and hitting things with a hammer he is definitely not about politics. He's definitely not about leading except for the big events and big speeches or whatever has to be done to make everybody do the right thing, the Sigmarite thing. Um, but largely, he's obsessed about the thing that we all know is coming, and that's the end of the world. He's obsessed about this. He comes to a whole host of conclusions, some of which he half believes, some of which he definitely believes, some of which he's unsure about. And then we diverge into two separate versions of Volkmar, one of which moves towards the end times, the other of which moves towards the storm of chaos because Warhammer itself split and it splits more than once. Um, we're aware that the end times ends around about 25, 25-ish, around about that area. That we get different dates in different books. Sometimes it goes all the way up to almost 30. Sometimes it cuts off about 24. In the same way that um, we've got ourselves say the Nemesis Crown campaign, which goes far beyond that mm. time. So we have lots of different end points in the Warhammer world with lots of different versions of how it could end. But one, the Storm of Chaos version of him, is extremely important because it tells a completely different story to the one that we get in the end times. And we'll cover the end times one as well because not necessarily all the details of the end times, but it does paint again a slightly different version of Volkmar. But the one that heads off towards the Storm of Chaos does not have the support of his cult. Now, this is something that may surprise, given his an enormous amount of power, but it's because of his obsessions. He becomes obsessed with the idea of killing the Everchosen, of getting up there and stopping him. Now, there's a couple of slight variations. There's one um, source that suggests he's trying to get there before he actually becomes Everchosen, but if you actually look at all the dates, he's already Everchosen yeah, by the time yeah, he's already marching. 
Um, and there's already a, uh, there's also another version which um, suggests that he himself was a figure of doubt in that he wasn't sure of what he was doing. Um, and he wasn't sure whether he was the champion of light, but that kind of got overwritten by the Storm of Chaos material that came out later, where he was convinced he was the champion of light. He was convinced that he had to be the champion of light because the ever-chosen had to be stopped. And when he asked a bunch of for everyone for help, he didn't get it. He went kicking around all of his mates, the supposed friends from fourth edition onwards, goes to the emperor, give us a hand, nope. Goes elsewhere, give us a hand, nope. He ends up having to go to Talapine, where he speaks mm. to the electric count over there. Now, the electric count over there at this point is a chap called Feuerbach. And uh, the electric count Feuerbach, who becomes the missing electric count for some time because of the events that occur here, um, supports the Grand Theogenist. Now, if you know anything about imperial politics, this is a massive coup and a weird place to be in. And it speaks a lot to Feuerbach himself and what happened during the Troubles. Because Feuerbach is a Sigmarite leading a Tal-leaning realm. Talibiglad mm. really, really deeply leans over to Tal and Tal worship. And Volkmar had to go there to get the bulk of his army that he uses to march off into Kislev. And that is extraordinary. That really speaks to some massive problems back in Altdorf, some real political divisions, some real issues. There's obviously a host of problems that the Empire's facing anyway. Karl Franz has reasons that he can't just give all of his troops to Volkmar to go on a crazy scheme to go north, because as far as everyone was concerned, Volkmar's scheme was just to march an army into the middle of nowhere for no real reason. Yeah. Nobody could really pin it down. What the fuck are you talking about, Volkmar? You madman, what are you doing? But he was right in some respects in that he was going north to face off the world's greatest evil as far as he was concerned. And he saw himself as the only figure that was willing to see the truth that Sigmar was giving him. He could see the end times coming. He knew that very possibly gods were about to die. As we all know, the Storm of Chaos, those of us who know the Storm of Chaos, one of the great points of that was they were attempting to kill Ulrich, take the power of the flame of Ulrich from Middenheim. Middenheim became the center of that particular campaign. Mm. So Volkmar marches off, off into the north, off up to Kislev, and he meets an enormous Chaos Horde. This is about a year before the Storm of Chaos goes full, full on, before the actual invasion occurs, so the one year before. And cut a long story short, because there's a host of stories with him popping over to Talapine, getting his armies, heading off north. He loses. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. And he is taken down by one of the most powerful and most dangerous demons in the world. One we covered very recently. Yeah. Well, so, so Archeon kills him, but Bellacor comes out Bellacor just comes a out. bit later. I mean, Totally. So Archeon, though he does face against Archeon, I'd forgotten about that one. Thanks. So yeah, because because he does get busy. Yeah, he gets there. chopped down by uh, Slayer of Kings. Yeah, to he totally does. Um. Ah. Uh, yeah. Belakar comes along with this huge um, demonic army afterwards, and uh, he finds his corpse because it had just been left there on the battlefield. Um. And Belakar, showing Belakar's power, resurrects him, brings him back <laughs> to life. So Volkmar is dead, gone nowhere yep completely denying every tale you will hear from sigmar um or any of the chaos gods if you're killed by chaos you fall to chaos or whatever 
He resurrects him in a way that probably shouldn't happen, speaking directly to the power of Belakor, perhaps denying the chaos gods themselves of their great quarry, yanking this spirit back from wherever it had gone, pulls him back together, goes, hey, hey, we've got myself a new, uh, let's just not say undead. We've got ourselves a new, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm going to use him for? Decoration on me banner. And he puts him up in his big grand battle banner and he hangs there for a year. Yep. Um, and he's left up there, not being fed, never dying, sitting on a banner, hanging there as Belakor and his demonic legion stomp around the north of the old world. The storm of chaos comes. He comes flying down to Furlangen in uh, Ostland and then from there makes his way over to eventually Middenheim, which is the center of the Storm of Chaos, the Storm of um, uh, uh, the campaign. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. So um, with the there, <laughs> there the story goes. If anything, wild. <laughs> yeah, we we hit full jump the shark territory. <laughs> oh yeah! Just yeah. wait, you see what uh, good old uh, Volkmar's yeah, so about to do. The best way to describe the Storm of Chaos is that it was we okay. We will get. We will yes. get to the Hell and Hammer ship. <laughs> That's coming. Um, we're not there yeah, yet. Yeah, great one, Commander. Yes, is the answer. Yes. So, so the Storm of Chaos, for anyone that's never had the pleasure of reading it, because it is a pleasure to read, was mm. a very well-designed, grounded, kick-ass campaign up until about the last 5%. And when they, because for some reason, instead of just telling a cool story, they decided to allow the public to get involved and to like, submit votes on how they were going and it did not go the way games workshop wanted it to go um it went oh, very badly and so games workshop was sit looking at the results and instead of just doing something good they looked to their poor writers and said hey um here's the results can you make chaos just like lose really badly and they were like oh all right. <laughs> so a lot of really weird shit happens right at the end. Um, yeah, in many respects, you can see the storm of chaos as the precursor to the end times. Yeah. Um, everything that happens in the storm of chaos at the end, as they attempt to rationalize lots of, let's say, results that did not necessarily match with the narrative that they had been very strongly building. Um, and attempt to justify an outcome that still didn't leave some of their best characters in a position where they look like total idiots. Um, I mean, they've got these powerful Chaos characters who've been kicking ass and chewing gum for arguably centuries, suddenly getting their asses hand to the, handed to them easily. And I do mean easily. To yeah, say that the victory against Chaos was massive is, is, is a really, really small way of describing a massive loss for Chaos. But they're campaign didn't really describe that so they had some very odd justifications for the outcomes that they eventually arrive at volkmar's one is pretty fucking mental. yeah so volkmar like andy said has not eaten or drank anything was brought back from death after being <laughs> chopped down by uzul the uh the slayer of kings and just you know <laughs> should be in really bad shape he was functionally crucified um, covered in chains and has been tortured mentally and physically by Bellacor, the first damned for a year, over 400 days. And yep, yep. He, arri <laughs> he arrives at Middenheim 
And Pokemar looks out and sees all of the Empire and goes, Oh, okay, time for time for my secret plan, and reveals that he was faking it the entire time, I guess. Oh, no, I, I let's say he was divinely inspired. Sure. I don't think faking it. I mean, I mean, you could say that, but let, let's let's go for a more charitable version. Volkmar, upon seeing the edifice that was Middenheim under great threat, um, upon seeing his own emperor take to the field, upon seeing, I mean, Teclis is up there doing his thing. There's all manner of warfare going on all around. Um, pulls himself down from that banner and a sheer uh, act of will and, uh, cut a long story short, hikes it back to the Temple of Shalia um, inside. Okay, well, well, but, so he breaks free, right? He yeah, shatters yeah. demonic chains yeah, and he then does. he starts whooping the shit out of demons using the enchanted chains oh, that he was bound chains. with. <laughs> Yeah, he totally started whipping around the shit out of demon regiment, and like it's it's. Is it Carl Franz himself who picks him up and then pulls him back? Yeah, yeah, it's something like that. It's been a while since I read it, but yeah, he he ends up in the temple of Shalia, um, and (laughs) there he's he's minced for various obvious reasons. He's in a mess, and he doesn't really see through the most of the rest of the Storm of Chaos battle. Um, however. As ridiculous as that was, and it was also kind of cool, depending upon exactly which version of it you wrote, you uh, yes, read. Yeah. Um, was it Lewin? I mean, someone's bringing up who did it. Was uh, it very possibly was Lewin? In fact, it was Lewin because it was Lewin Leonker, um, who was down there that was facing off. So yeah, good. Thanks very much for that, Mister Um, uh, and then Volkmar did a Warhammer. Yeah, he freaking did, Mornington. He freaking did. So he did a Warhammer. Um, it completely screws him. He gets flapped back. Thanks for confirming who it was there, Sid. Um, he drops into the Temple of Shalia. Uh, now, the Storm of Chaos, as an idea, was great. Its initial implementation was great. The stories that ended it were not necessarily well executed, but the ideas behind them, I think, were also great. Yes, Indeed, and the in, aftermath in respects, stories. Ooh. Yeah, there's some great Ooh. stuff in here. I'd say significantly beyond the end times in terms of its execution, um, personally speaking. Uh, and the Storm of Chaos also, if you look to everything that happened and went, but what does that mean? How does that work? Which is what the role-playing game does. Created some fascinating situations, which the role-playing game in second edition picked up and ran with and attempted to try and justify some of the craziness that happened during the end of the Storm of Chaos because the second edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay is set post-Storm of Chaos. Now, Games Workshop itself Whoops, let's bring up that. Well, in fact, that. So, in fact, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to call, I was going to actually use this as my example. So you and I, Hammond, in a rare moment, are in <laughs> absolute agreement. Um, in that, uh, the Storm of Chaos is a little bit like the prequels. Um, it's Rather than the sequel trilogy, the prequels. In that, there's loads of brilliant ideas in there, but the execution's a bit weird. And some of it's not great. But if you go ahead and move into the Clone Wars and watch all the rest of the additional material, suddenly the prequel era is just freaking awesome. And in some respects, that's what the second edition Warhammer did. It took something that was perhaps a bit weird and wonky in places and didn't necessarily make a great deal of sense and ran with it. And the Volkmar situation was fascinating. And I picked up this one inside the Tome of Salvation. In the Tome of Salvation, the cult of Sigmar is in a state of total schism. Because during 
the time when Volkmar had hiked off north on his fool's errand to get himself killed, another Grand Theogenist had been voted in. Esmer. Now, Esmer was a politician to his core. He's a Sigmarite. He's not a bad Sigmarite, but he is a politician. And many Sigmarites just think that the word politician is a swear word, particularly the warrior priests. But from the, uh, the cult of the cult of the torch the order of the torture's perspective he was the natural successor he was probably someone that they thought should have or someone of his ilk should have been in the position in the first place the mistakes of putting a warrior priest in command were made evident by the mess that volkmar not only created but ended as he moved north esmer was naturally a sigmarite more defensive he spoke to defense where the orican spoke to attack in fact, during the Storm of Chaos Army list, there's a lovely little bit explaining the Sigmarites were all about defend, defend, defend. The Oricans are all about strike, strike, strike. Um, and Esmer represents that view. He's a politician and he looks at the cult of Sigmar. He looks at the state of the world and he goes, we need to turtle down. And loosely speaking, that's his advice as he presses outwards. However, did not make him very popular. Pardon? Did not make him very popular. <laughs> Oh, well, uh, it did in some corners, but not in others, particularly amongst yeah. the Luther Hosses of the world. Um, yeah. they very I, much I would say the Emperor as well. <laughs> and the Karl Emperor, Fr I don't think Karl Franz yeah, is Karl, Karl Franz has always been a little bit more of the Volkmar school of thought. Yeah. Um, so we have ourselves um, a Grand Theogenist. And then now we have ourselves another one. And the Grand Theogenist is permanent. That's it. You are always the Grand Theogenist. And as it turns out, we've got another one. And he has been seen to have pulled himself off a banner of the demon gods. What? Yeah. And he's still alive? What? And then there is a mighty schism in the cult because we have ourselves one example of a Grand Theogenist who is everything that is Sigmar's attack face. And we have another one who is everything of Sigmar's defense face. And the cult splits right down the middle. Who is the next Grand Theogenist? Which one should it be? And they do split. In the end, Esmer goes into seclusion down in Marienburg, and we have ourselves what can only be described as a demon-resurrected, nigh-on undead immortal Volkmar sitting as Grand Theogenist, and quite clearly marked as having very dark thoughts. Think of what he's been through. Think of the hell he has witnessed. Think of the fact that if the various versions of the lore are correct, he's been in the realms of chaos now. He has been tormented by the chaos gods because he was killed by the Everchosen. He was pulled out of that hell and placed on a banner by the first demon prince and tortured for another year. Is he a man of sound mind? I am going to suggest that he probably is not. Yeah, he had, he got a new special rule for that uh, edition of the battle, the like the actual tabletop game because he is insane. Like <laughs> he's given like a frenzy rule, I think. Yeah, um, he is proper proper broken, and I think that that I think that that entire story is really cool. It's a really cool story for the cult of Sigmar. Never it's play really this game. Cool... You'll, you'll die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does pop up a lot, doesn't it? Um, it's uh, <laughs> thanks very much, cool. Um, it's a really cool. Um, entire situation not just for the cult of sigmar but for the empire as a whole because we've now got ourselves effectively a dark 
dark figure sitting at the top of the most important cult in the empire, advising an emperor and in many respects, probably being even more fervent than he ever was before about how important it was to stop chaos, to attack, to attack, to attack. In many respects, you could say that this is one of the clearest steps towards the actual end of the world because we have mm. ourselves a broken cult of Sigmar. This is arguably the point where the empire breaks. And no matter how much they try to pick up the pieces at the end, they're broken already. So yeah, hey, this is that's a great fun. point from uh Sort of Sin that he does show up in the Sword of Vengeance series, and it's it's clear Volkmar's insane at this point. Yeah. Do, where the only thing he talks about is tracking down Archeon. Because Archeon Archeon survives the events of the Storm of Chaos. He escapes uh, after Grimgor beats him up pretty bad. But uh like Volkmar is like nothing else matters. The only thing that matters is tracking down Archeon, um, to the detriment of everything else. Yeah, he, he loses it. And I think this is um, a good point. Uh, it's quite clear if this particular version of the end times had failed, you could easily have yourself um, a next step ever chosen in someone like Volmar, Volkmar the Grim because he's heading towards a massive fall. He's already fallen. It's just a matter of bringing everybody else down with him. If you're looking for someone to be a figure that could be responsible for the, not just breakup of the empire, but its destruction, it could be Volkmar, and that could shatter what remains of his mind. So yeah, that could be one potential end for him. There is obviously lots of other stories, and this is only one version of Volkmar, because the version of Volkmar that we have that heads towards the end times hasn't got that event underneath his belt. But interestingly, sort of also does. It's, yes. um, so, it's kind of weird. Yeah, so one um, of the things... Exactly how the character's handled. Yeah, one of the things they did um, with the Storm of Chaos is when they rewind before the Storm of Chaos, they kick everything back about five years. Yeah. Um, and one of the things they do is that Games Workshop liked a lot of the stories this they told. The edition now. So we're moving yes, to the we're going edition into... of the battle game, just to make sure. Yes. Uh, thoughts on Volkmar's Resurrection by Bellacor versus Cetra's Resurrection by the Chaos God at the End Times, both outside the typical order of death and necromancy. They're, they're similar but different in that Cetra's, Very different. Cetra's soul did not leave his body. Um, Cetra is like, the, the, the book goes out of its way to kind of show that Cetra is still conscious with what's left of him that's been torn apart because Nagash purposely leaves him that way. Nagash wants him to sit there for eternity in the ruins of what he loved and built up to, and to see how like, you know, uh, infinitesimally small he was compared to Nagash and the chaos yeah. guys literally just put him back together. Um, I, I would argue that then what the chaos did was a small feat. All they were doing was picking up some broken pieces, putting them together for Cetra himself to drag off and carry on where what Bellacor did was extraordinary, took mm. a soul that was lost to the chaos and brought it back entirely conscious entirely aware and put it back into its old body and rehoused it it was an extreme feat if you want to compare the two of them i would suggest that the setra resurrection was small beans and was something that was a very easy thing for them to do to really fuck up with their enemies plans where the bellacor one was almost certainly almost bellacor's pride and strength running winning the day in that one yeah I, I would I would 100 percent agree. The the central resurrection was literally with a grand theogenist on. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so um, one of the things that was super interesting leading into eighth edition 
was that Games Workshop had a weird situation on their hands where they wanted to get rid of the Storm of Chaos storyline because they didn't like how it ended and they wanted to build up to a new end times. Um, but at the same time, there were a lot of things that happened in the Storm of Chaos that they really, really liked and they didn't want to throw away those elements. So they just yep. decided to keep them. Um, yep. And they basically just did some retcons to insinuate that those things had happened due to other events for like a great example is that Garagrim iron fist Ungrim's son still dies in the eighth edition storyline even though his death happened during the storm of chaos so mm -hmm. they just retconned it to that he just dies uh during a different fight through the uh through peak uh, i think it's either high pass or peak pass um where he fights um archaon's uh eventual lieutenant um good old um vardic krom vardic krom um, yeah, yeah they, um, they keep the idea that grimgor fights vardic krom but instead of it being during the storm of chaos it's when krom's running around gathering troops for archaeon in the build-up to the end times totally um loosely because um i was uh writing still for the game at the time um and i was writing for the game at the transition point between Storm of Chaos is 100% the setting we are using, and it's the setting the studio is using, and it's keeping it, to the studio aren't convinced that they're going to use this anymore, and they might do something new for the next edition, to the studio are moving on. Um, let's bring up, oh, what's happened there? Uh, Mornington, I would agree. Yes. Krell, Krell being pulled out by Nagash is more similar to Bellacor pulling out Volkbar, yeah. except Bellacor brought him back to life. Not like undeath, but to life, which is fucking bonkers. <laughs> yeah, the the Krell one is special because it's a chaos, it's again chaos, and those souls should be lost. Um, and uh, I think speaks to the strength of Nagash. Uh, yeah, that massive. That's yeah, a th massive those thing. are those it's are much similar like similar spheres. Yeah. 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 Totally. So, um, uh, so your uh, thing. Yeah, behind the scenes, um, I was uh, I was there throughout the course of that, and I was writing a variety of different books. And by the time I think the Kislev book ca came out, we were in full transition, um, and that was the point where we no longer mentioned the Storm of Chaos directly, but all of the events from the Storm of Chaos had still happened. Um, so, for example, if you take a look inside the old I Realm of the Ice Queen book in Erengrad, uh, the version of Erengrad that's presented in there, the Storm of Chaos has occurred. Um, definitely has occurred. As I recall, it doesn't get mentioned as the Storm of Chaos, but it has occurred. Erengrad was sacked and has been rebuilt, and that rebuilding has changed a course. Uh, yes. I yes, for $8 as well. Thank you. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Good old number eight. Perfect. Thank you very much, Mandatis. Hugely appreciated. Um, so uh, that was transition point. Um, so all of the Storm of Chaos events were said to have occurred during those books. Um, and then we moved on to about the time when uh, Second Edition was reaching the end of its life as it moved over to Fantasy Flight Games as a license rather than being run by Games Workshop directly. And at that point, when we were writing, say, for example, Shades of Empire, um, in Shades of Empire, a completely different situation was now in place. And that was that the Storm of Chaos didn't really happen. But that just meant that the words Storm and of Chaos were eradicated but attacks from the north had been in, let's say, progress for the last two, three, four, five years. They've been coming in, they've been coming out, they've been coming in, coming out. So every event that happened in Storm of Chaos can still have happened if we want. 
And that allows us to use the events from the Storm of Chaos to tell stories, but just not have it be the Storm of Chaos. Because by the time 8th edition has, uh, has arrived, they were back to their five minutes to midnight setting. So the, the great arrival of Chaos was about to come, and Archeon most certainly had not had his ass handed to him. And that was an important <laughs> difference. Archeon had not lost. They didn't want Archeon to be a loser. And in many respects, that was one of the biggest problems with the Storm of Chaos campaign. If they'd not put Archeon at the head of it, the whole thing was pretty much everything they needed. But because Archeon was at the top, the whole thing kind of went down wrong. Um, so that bet got erased while almost everything else kind of stayed, except for maybe the whole Siege of Middenheim, unless it did, depending upon which book was being written. So at that point... Um, there was this weird dichotomy standing in place for Volkmar, where he was seen by some who were creating stuff as uh, the leader of the Cult of Sigmar, who had been through hell and back, where by others he was just seen as a fanatical warrior priest style, Volkmar the Grim sitting at the top of the cult. And I think it's fair to say that different writers had just sort of mulched them together by the time it hit the end times. And by the time that Games Workshop had moved from eight, five minutes to midnight, no, actually, fuck it, we're just going midnight. We're blowing up the Warhammer world. We're just going to bring the world to an end. The Volkmar that they were using was a lovely mixture of all of the above. He had bits from one, bits from another. He was clearly the eighth edition version from their army list, so he was still a deep scholar, obsessed by chaos. But had he gone through being a chaos standard? Probably not. No, so one of the th so the things they did is th the way they portray Volkmar in Eighth Edition, which I do like a lot, is that he, in many ways, in my opinion, kind of ties back to Sigmar himself. Of that, you're dealing with a character who is very thoughtful, very well spoken, very clever. Um, but when he it, when his blood gets up, he becomes a terror. Like he almost transforms into a different person. And yeah. they kind of go out of their way to show it in that there's like a whole battle scene where to kind of paint a picture with Volkmar, they talk about that he finds out that there is, oh gosh, I want to say it's either an ogre tribe or a greenskin horde. I can't remember which one it is, but there's this big old army that's coming up from the south and uh, Volkmar finds out about it. And uh, after some kind of putting around, he basically finds out nobody's going to deal with it. So he decides to deal with it himself. But nobody's willing <laughs> oh, to... Just remembering the event now. Yeah, yeah nobody's willing to support him. And Volkmar goes, fine, I'll, 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 Volkmar. Do, it, I'll, I'll do it myself. <laughs> so he gets on the war altar. And as he goes, who would win the battle of grimness, Volkmar or Altharian? Uh, I think as far as like actual grimness, I would say it's Altharian by a thousand miles. Um, but because Volkmar... Yeah. For him, it's it's more of a yard. I, I hey, yeah, that's but, a good question, Ryan. Yeah, I think I think I think Altharian has more PTSD than Volkmar does. I don't um, know. I mean, being a chaos standard, pretty PTSD. Oh well, okay. If we're talking about storm of going chaos, through Volkmar. the realms of chaos could be pretty. You know, okay. it's really hard. It depends on which Volkmar. If we're just talking about the Volkmar who leads the cult and does his own thing because he's a warrior priest and ignores good <laughs> advice, then. I mean, Eltharion's okay. got one hand down. But if we're talking about a Vol Volkmar who has done all that and realized the errors of his ways, in fact, found out that going against the classic Sigmarite doctrine of defense was, in fact, his doom. Um, and we're talking about one that had been through the very worst hells. I'd say he's had a pretty grim. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I would say I would say if it's Storm of Chaos Volkmar, I think Volkmar wins. If it's yeah. not Storm of Chaos Volkmar, I think Altharian wins. Yeah, Altharian's got a pretty grim tale, and also another character that there's multiple versions of him. Oh yeah, uh, we'll have to do that. <laughs> I mean, he's the classic example of it. In fact, for a stream at a later date, I think he'll make a fine standing example of some of the difficulties of attempting to collate Games Workshop lore and tell a single tale because he has multiple tales about him. Everyone thinks it's two, but it's not. It's a bit more than two. Elfarian, yeah. the Grim Warder of Tori of Res, is complicated. Yeah, a man of many right faces. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> um, so with Volkmar, the so he. Her, hears about this horde down south and he gets on his wall altar and he goes i'm gonna go deal with it myself and he starts proselytizing as he's going like he's 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 yelling about how people should be should be fighting to protect the empire there's a threat coming in it's threatening sigmar's people it's threatening their their towns their civilization they should be standing up to fight and he starts gathering this horde of fanatics and it's mostly flagellants um uh, people that are desperate or broken or insane who uh a giant Volkmar, army of flagellants as i recall isn't it almost a hundred thousand flagellants yeah, or some nonsense like, yeah like i think it's ten thousand um but it's it's a massive I, no i think it was a hundred it might it might have been uh I think and it they, they make their way i want to say they fight at the river ever maybe um but they one of the big rivers in the empire there's a huge fight where it's Talibic. Because I remember um, having an argument with Games Workshop at the time because um, they didn't realize how big the Talibic was. And I sent a message over saying, you do realize the Talibic's over a, a, like a mile and a bit wide where he is? This makes no sense at all. It's it's bothering me that I can't remember who he yeah, is. Yeah, go look it up. Empire Army list. Yeah, uh, let's see. The Martyrs of Telfjord. Uh, oh, it's a Chaos War host of Grekor. Oh, there we go. It is the Talibic. Uh, it, yeah, yeah. Telfjord. 10,000 flagellants over the 10,000. Well, between the pair of us, we got it there in the yeah, end. It was the 10,000, not the 100,000. And it, yeah, it was the Talibek that was forded. And the Talibek can't be forded there. It's yeah. actually too big. So, um, yeah, we had a bit of a discussion behind the scenes how we were going to deal with that. It was also an issue that was inside Empire at War, one of the Black Library background books. Um, in the Black Library book, though, the actual big war that was fought that's mentioned that one between Talibic land and Sterland, I think. It was originally going to be over the Talibic, and it was like, how? They'd just be looking <laughs> at each other with telescopes. Uh, yeah. The water's too wide, so they moved it over to one of the tributaries of the Talibic instead. But um, that didn't happen for this battle, which sort of doesn't well, make sense. Well, they said the Battle of the Talfjord, so it must be some particular... So, yeah, let's just say it's um, uh, like, uh, uh, just off the Tal, yeah, <laughs> the Talibic. So uh, this big this big fight happens, and it's so you have to remember this is a chaos host. There are monsters, there are guy, there are chaos warriors and heavy armor. They're like, there's all this stuff, and all Volkmar has with them is ten thousand mostly naked people with flails and whatever they happen to have to hand, and he wins. But it's noted yeah, that the only thing left standing at the end of the battle is Volkmar and twenty flagellants. So nine thousand nine hundred and eighty people died. You're pushing but, it. Crab the Grim versus Yorick Grim versus Balcrag Grimgerson. Oh, you gotta go with Craig. Craig's the grimmest grim grim bitch. Like Craig is so I really like Craig's a figure I'd really like to have a chat about at some point because Craig is, you know, he's a fine example of a dwarven oath made manifest. I will not die until he just will not die. He just keeps on going. I do love Craig. Um, I'm just gonna say that because I freaking love Craig. <laughs> um 
10,000 flatulence. Listen, I know flagellance is a weird word. It just, it, it is. There's no but, um, so, uh, so that kind of goes to show that when Volkmar really gets his blood up and he sees something that in his head, Sean, Sean. Mm, honestly, I don't think they really talk that much, to be honest with you. Um, Altharian. So, okay, granted, this is 8th edition Altharian. The last version of Altharian we got was vaguely speciesist, um, which makes sense. Um, he's very, very big pro-high-elf, uh, and he really dislikes the younger races because um, he just views them all as worthless. He blames them a lot for the fact that the Greenskins yeah. became enough of a problem for Grom to make it over. Um, I don't think him... I think him and Volkmar, the only thing they would get along about is how much they hate Greenskins. Um, but... Yeah. I don't really think they would get along that well, and they probably wouldn't talk very much. Altharian, no, they wouldn't get on. I think that's a. I, I think yeah. it's a good summary. They just wouldn't get on. Now that doesn't mean that they wouldn't necessarily fight um, on, let's say, similar sides. Yeah, but similar. they certainly would not get on. Yeah, like I, mean, I, I, I could imagine a situation where I could write it up to make it work but you would be really having to thread a needle through a very small hole when you've got a far greater expanse of needle-wasted space to throw all your if there was uh, a, thread into. If there was a big bad wah going on and they were having to unify to deal with it, um, they would probably get along great. But any other scenario would probably not be a good meeting. I'm going to bring up this comment because I think it's actually fair. And I'd also just like to add to make sure how ridiculous this is as a statement. One of Tyrion's, uh, Tyrion, depending how you pronounce it, uh, Tyrion's names is Manslayer. So let's just make sure that's nice and clear. <laughs> Tyrion Manslayer would have a better chance of talking to him. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, any, carrying yeah, on. In any event, so with this, with Volkmar, we have the idea that he's, he's very scholarly. He's very well studied. He's an excellent... Um, uh, theologian uh, with the cult of Sigmar and the other cults. He actually does quite a bit of research into the other various cults because he understands them as he refers to them all as the old gods. When he's and when he's talking about both pantheons, the new god, the classical gods and the old gods, he just calls them all old gods because to him they are um, from a perspective of a Sigmarite because they're all pre-Sigmar. But yep. he has a very like he does a lot of research into them about how they influence what the Empire is and how they influence Sigmar himself. But he is also, when he sees an enemy of Sigmar, he, if his blood gets up, he goes, I'm going to charge at that thing and I'm going to fucking hit it till it's dead. Or I am. Period. End of story. Um, One of the reasons I loved using him in the battlefield, he's damn bloody good at it. Yes, mean, who knows who was actually driving his big chariot war altar? <laughs> but because I mean, he was just standing on the back with his hands up having it, a, a it's a way through his sheer fucking willpower the, yeah, horse, totally. the horses just horses. know where to go Forward! <laughs> take me closer so i can hit them with my hammer um, <laughs> oh it's a truly ridiculous model the first one i loved yeah. it <laughs> so um so that's kind of the individual we have before we get into a lot of the other th uh specifics of that he was born a noble he was raised in a noble house probably had yeah. some siblings probably not yeah. the oldest sibling so he was able to go into the church instead of being maybe a competition oh. over a title or something um, and he gets extremely into his faith. He fights against beastmen, mutants, chaos hordes, and stuff. But he also something happens to him in his life where he becomes very obsessed with chaos. And yeah. he spends countless nights driving himself borderline mad, trying to find an answer. 
And in 8th edition, it does carry on with the idea that Volkmar is obsessed with the idea that there is a coming apocalypse and the apocalypse is going to boil down to the ever-chosen versus a warrior of light. He's obsessed with this prophecy. And he's trying to figure out who it is. 8th edition kind of plays around with the idea that he kind of thinks it might be Carl Franz. He kind of thinks it might be himself. He kind of thinks it might be some indiv- he the, like Luther Huss might find out who it is, um, which I think now is probably a good it time. It was Grimgor. <laughs> yeah, it was Grimgor all along. Um, but uh, I think this comes to a good point of Luther Huss, where Luther Huss, we're not going to get super into him, but he very much is a living embodiment of the schism within the cult of Sigmar of that there are individuals that are far more political and scheming, but there are also people that are good, honest Sigmarites that believe in being on the defensive. But there's a heavy disagreement between them and those that think, no, we are infested with evil. We must take up the hammer. We must go fight. We must be aggressive. And that is Luther Huss to yep. a fault in a sense. And yep. Luther Huss is so aggressive that when he finally managed to get elevated enough that he was invited to the cool kids party and he got to meet like the arc lectors and all these different other important individuals, the various lectors and stuff. And he was sitting in a council. He got extremely upset in the very first meeting because of how much just boring money talk was going on and political talk and scheming against the other cults. And he literally stood up in the middle of the meeting his first day. And he basically looked around and said, you're all fat incompetent assholes who are like repulsive you are everything the cult of sigmar should stand against you should be ashamed of yourselves and they all went dude what the fuck (laughs) and he just left um the arc lectors demanded he apologized he refused he uh pulled the i don't uh, i believe that's when he nails his uh thing to the door right yeah on the cathedral of sigmar um and he pieces out And what's interesting is that Luther ends up doing some not so legal things after that, where he goes on to start murdering members of the Sigmarite cult. Um, Full on. Like, there's no other way to put it. He is murdering people. Um, Yeah, he is. Where Luther Huss becomes so convinced of the idea that the cult of Sigmar has become corrupt that he starts looking for people, notably in positions of authority, especially around Altdorf, who he finds evidence of to either be chaos cultists which the the army book tries to play in it very black and white of that oh they're chaos cultists so obviously he's right i think if you were to delve into it further it would be very much more gray and he would probably be murdering people who are maybe innocent or maybe just kind of incompetent but otherwise not bad um he kills yeah one of the uh primary things you should do if you're sitting out there going oh i'd like to read up more on this because it sounds freaking awesome um is always view the uh army books as the black and white version the good versus evil the order versus destruction it's all quite simple they tend to have stories that are almost archetypical and super easy to understand but then you move over to the novels, over to the role-playing game, and often the extra depth is added by things like White Dwarf or any of the other various licensing options. And then you find that it's a lot more grey. There's not just shades of grey sitting in between, there's often colour as well, as you realise that what looks like a lovely, pure motivation, behind it there might be unexpected greed or the influence of the dark gods or something else. So 
always think that whenever you're reading any of the army list stuff instead of just going it is this thinks think instead this is what everybody says this is what it is perceived as and it might actually be behind the scenes something a little bit more complicated and that in general makes the setting feel a little bit richer as well hey hammond Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah, that's totally not what Luther Huss was purely stolen from as an idea. Yeah, <laughs> no, it wasn't. Um, but in many respects, I think that does speak to the character and what he represents, which was um, uh, a return, or shall we say, an installation of a different set of values over the cult of Sigmar and what he perceived to be its true values and how he thought the cult of Sigmar should be and quite clearly was heading towards a mighty schism a movement, a uh, hmm. shifting, which would break that cult of Sigmar up into potentially two, if not more, factions. And for a cult that's already fragmented into thousands of pieces, um, to have those pieces split out across into two major factions would have been terrible. But I do, do think that speaks to the end times itself and the fragmentation and dissolution, hmm. entropy, if you will, of all things. In many respects, Luther Huss was an agent of chaos. Ryan Jones, and loads and most holy Grimgar, who art decreed the best by his own word, smote the earth chosen upon the field with the most righteous nutting. So saith the word of Sigmar. Well, yeah, and I, I think, Ryan, that's um, uh, a really good point to bring up. Um, and that's <laughs> that um, Volkmar and his obsessions um, was ultimately speciesist. He was quite convinced Very much. that the saviors of the world would be Sigmar and his chosen children. And that is it. Whilst the rest of the world was forgotten. It also speaks to another issue that Games Workshop has in general. And that's its great desire to simplify things and turn things into, say, order and destruction. Because the orcs are most certainly not chaos. Indeed, the orcs are under certain circumstances, your best ally against chaos. And Grimgor in particular, very much, if you were looking at just the basic legend of the ever-chosen, legend of the champion of light and everything that it rep re represents, Grimgor did the job pretty yeah. much. So, yeah, I think that works quite well. And it does speak to the difference between shades of grey that you get from the broader setting and the black and white version that you tend to get for the battle game, because they've got to basically get everybody fighting everybody else in any way they possibly can. Yeah. Um, so the the thing about Luther Huss that is very interesting is that, A, uh, fun fact about Luther Huss is that in a roleplay game, he would be kind of a fascinating character because he has a lot. He's the most powerful warrior priest out there next to Volkmar himself as far as how strong his prayers manifest but he would also have a shit ton of sin points <laughs> because he oh, violates yeah. a lot of Sigmarite strictures um, 100% like he is a full on Sigmarite vigilante even against his own faith which causes him a lot of personal turmoil and it makes him such a great character but what's interesting is that so Luther Huss is out there murdering prominent members of the Sigmarite church <laughs> and sometimes there's evidence left behind with their corpses that they were chaos cultists, which like, okay, good job. Sometimes though, there's not like, yeah. it does go out of its way to say sometimes the people he murder, they were just greedy, um, which isn't like technically a crime. Uh, and many members of the church began to panic because they start to go, Oh shit, this guy's going to kill me. <laughs> I'm going to say cult every time you say church. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Uh, cult. <laughs> but uh, yeah. like they're sitting there going, uh Oh, I'm in trouble. 
And so uh, many within the cult start, you know, bickering their way upwards, finally to the Ark Lectors. And the Ark Lectors go to Volkmar and they say, hey, uh, like, uh, and it's, it, we, we know, <laughs> yeah, we know Volkmar has met Huss at least once, apparently. Um, but they go to Volkmar and they say, hey, this Luther Huss guy is going crazy. We need you to excommunicate him. We need you to tell him he's not a part of the cult anymore. He's, uh, you know, he's in defiance of Sigmar. He's awful, whatever, whatever. And Volkmar refuses. Volkmar just goes, nope, I'm just not going to say anything about it. Like, he doesn't explain to them, which is hilarious, and it causes a lot of frustration within the cult of Sigmar, that Volkmar just won't talk about it. Anytime someone brings up Luther Huss, it specifically mentions all Volkmar does is he gets this little smile on his face, like a little wry, thin-lipped smile, and he doesn't say anything. Well, so, and I think if you just look at it in terms of uh, the nature of what being in the cult is he's done the right thing mm. loosely speaking and again speaking in generalisms here he is the prophet of sigmar luther huss and that's his good old title that he's given he yeah. is blessed by sigmar to execute him execute him <laughs> that's <laughs> not my meant to say um would be to go quite literally against sigmar's will he is blessed by Sigmar. The only way that he could actually excommunicate him is to say that Sigmar has not blessed him. He's a witch. He's something else. He is gaining these great miracles from a different source. But that is demonstrably not true. And it would make Volkmar a liar. And he is not that man at no. all. He is not a politician. He will look at it in relatively black and white terms. And he'll look at it and he'll say, no, no, Sigmar is doing work that perhaps I am not directly involved with, but this is Sigmar's work. Let him go. And he will get all of his gathered brethren going, fuck no, he might go for me next. To which Volkmar will just sit and go, well, tidy your house. I got books to read. Fuck off. Yeah. And, and you go. Volkmar... Volkmar, and to, uh, as much as he does not like to engage with politics, it does show his cleverness in that he doesn't support us. Like, he yeah. doesn't say, no, I'm not going to do anything. He just refuses to comment on it. Like, it, it's it's basically the idea of, you know, a, a court case being passed all the way up to the highest court and them being like, we refuse to hear the case. Which is yeah. like, that's kind of them supporting it, but at the same time, or like supporting the decision that's being made, but at the same time, they're not technically making a ruling on it yeah quite i mean again just keep it simple he's blessed by sigmar um the only way they could rule was to support him so it's easier to just not rule um yeah. because if they rule and say that he's right then the cult itself is hitting schism territory when they start trying to oppose sigmar's will with the will of the cult which is clearly different um, but you got to remember there's many other people who are also blessed by Sigmar who are doing different things. It's complicated, it's difficult, and they chose not to answer it. A classic non-answer. But Valton is most certainly someone who is blessed. He goes and eventually finds, arguably, Sigmar reborn. He is, cut a long story short, someone who is definitely working Sigmar's good works. And that, no matter how much other members of the cult may not like it is something that they can't although many try deny it's it's the case he's blessed by sigmar if you cut him down then you are cutting down sigmar's chosen vessel 
Okay, this is this is actually a good question. I think worth asking yeah. uh, for because for people in the chat, which is yeah. why does Andy insist it's a cult and not a church? Okay, so this is um, something that was uh, drilled into me by Games Workshop because they kept fucking it up themselves, <laughs> um, and uh, they do not want the church of Sigmar to sound like it's a real world church. In the real world, cults are generally perceived. Um, as not, I mean, there's very few religions that are described as cults that aren't generally perceived negatively. They basically used the word cult to use for all of their religious stuff because it was a word that was seen to be relatively safe and not too representative of real world religions and less likely to accidentally offend some folk and also less likely to make people go, well, that means it's just a fantasy version of that. One of the things they were particularly uh, attempting to distance themselves from was in fact two was uh one the cult of sigmar was not the catholic church um which many people had tried to make it some of the writers had tried to make it an almost one for one representation of the catholic church but a fantasy version and they were very keen to make sure that sigmar was not just kona and jesus um <laughs> they wanted they wanted um sigmar to be much more the god king of the past not conan jesus um and they were very clear don't use church don't use church don't use church for anything in warhammer particularly because they also wanted at the peak of say second edition and into third edition they particularly wanted to separate warhammer and Warhammer 40,000. They wanted each of their individual IPs, their intellectual properties, to have unique language that spoke to their individual places. And church was used a lot over there, um, as was cult. Um, cult is used all over the place up there, but they wanted Warhammer to have its own discrete language that mostly spoke to it. So thus, the word cult was strongly pushed forward into the center. If, to play the good old Tome of Salvation drinking game, if you look in the Tome of Salvation, you'll find that there's not a single mention of the word cult. But there's also not another word inside that book that's worth just Did you finish mean, off. You, I think you meant church, not cult. I meant church. The word you cult shows up quite a few times. <laughs> you can tell that I'm scratching my face like mad and trying to concentrate on my words. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there's not a single word of the men. Hopefully not a single mention of the word church in there. Um, but there's also not a single mention of the word saint because that was seen to be 240k at the time. Um, that got massively dropped over time. We ended up having to call them blessed servants in that book, which was a bit of a mangle. Didn't like it. Um, but saints are very much a part of the Warhammer world and definitely do exist. Um, but that was seen to be 240k and too real world as well, because 40k in many respects is based on the real world. It's our real world's future, where um, Warhammer is definitely not our real world's past, future or present so it's um, important that we built distinctions in and one of the distinctions they made clearly was cult yeah. which honestly like it it makes more sense within the universe like because yeah. it, it would be weird for only one cult to use terms like that when literally every other cult that exists in a polytheistic <laughs> empire would not be using the word which would be odd um totally oh, but I, i'm i'm pretty strong and just keeping that because it also means that you don't get confused should they ever decide to in introduce the word church again it wouldn't surprise me if they use sigmarite church all over the old world if they do that i'll just throw out my toys <laughs> the baby <laughs> the bath water the lot and i'll be like fuck you you're just rewriting your language again i'm done <laughs> so uh back to volkmar um, I think now is a good point kind of deal talking about 
uh, with uh, the cults. Um, now is actually a pretty good time to delve into his depiction in the Liber Chaotica, um, which was a really pivotal moment for Volkmar uh, because it develops. It yeah, it changes his character in a huge way and made him way better of a character. Yeah, so to introduce what he's about to say, um, the Liber Chaotica is actually quite an old book. It came out around about, I mean, you'll have the date sitting inside the book if you've got it there. came out um the early zeros. We're talking like 2003-ish, 4-ish, somewhere around there. Um, so we're talking um, before 8th edition comes out. Um, we're talking before Warhammer 2nd edition comes out. We're also talking, it's just on Storm of Chaos era, as I recall. 2005. 2005. Okay, so we're just talking just when Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 2nd Edition is about to come out. So it was getting written in 2004. So Storm of Chaos is just happening. Um, and Volkmar the Grim, in terms of his overall character, gets a shift here. Uh, the character that he'd had before was very much what 4th Edition Warhammer had put in place. It was pretty much just raving mental Sigmar, right? Sigmarine, <laughs> arguably, in terms of how he presents himself. Um, devout, solid, strong, best mates of Carl Franz. There's very little real depth to his character. And that character is then used by, I believe it was Marianne von Stauffer who wrote this part, um, then used by Marianne to uh, build uh, a more complicated, faceted Volkmar. And that's the Volkmar that is taken forward from that point forwards. And that's the one that's used in 8th edition and I think is arguably a much better version. Yeah, so in this book there there's so much fucking awesome stuff in this book it's not even funny but um it also introduces and really runs with the multiverse theory uh when tying together for warhammer 40,000 and fantasy and it's hilarious because it's always from a fantasy character's perspective <laughs> so the 40k segments are particularly funny as hell because he has no idea what's going on most of the time <laughs> but anyway um uh, poor richter class um the Volkmar segment is at the very back of the book. Um, it's in the finale section, which deals with Bellicor, the Everchosen, and Sigmar, and kind of the nature of gods. The undivided section. Yeah, undivided. Yep. Yeah. And um, the thing, so there's a letter penned from uh, Grant Theodos Volkmar in his personal journal um, that basically talks about the... Theogenes's view on the Colleges of Magic and what their recent research indicates. Because the Colleges of Magic have only been around for 200 years. They're not, they're not very old. Um, and they brought what many of the cults felt was a lot of very heretical ideas to the forefront. Because they, oh, yeah. they started coming out and saying things like, your prayers aren't actually like unique divine things. You're just using magic. Uh, you're using weird magic, <laughs> but it's, it's just magic. <laughs> Um, uh, and the, uh, the elves in particular were quite bothered by this weird form of magic the humans were using. Uh, mm -hmm. and were like, you shouldn't do that. You should just use <laughs> normal spells. Um, uh, and the cults were incentivized by this. Um, there was a lot of pretty big schisms between especially the Sigmarite cult and the colleges of magic, because the colleges of magic would turn to them and say, you're just using magic. And they would turn around and say, no, Sigmar said magic was bad. So we can't be using magic. Shut up. You're all heretics. And we're going to kill you eventually. Um, yep. And it was a whole mess. So Volkmar is introduced as a significantly more thoughtful character because in his little treatise that he pens, he talks about that he actually invites many members of the Colleges of Magic over to visit him on a regular basis. And he goes over to the colleges on a regular basis because he likes to hear their opinions 
because Volkmar, instead of hearing something that conflicts with what he's been told before or his worldview and going, no, that can't be right. I reject it. Volkmar goes, okay, how do I fit this into my worldview to reinforce the things that I believe to be true, which is a very different and genuinely interesting position to have. So when the Colts come to him and they say, the question, but let's, let's not get philosophical. (laughs) Yeah. So when, when the, the college of light in particular comes to him and they say, okay, so you know, all that rubbish about the gods created the world and the universe. Okay. That's not actually true. And it was actually like these weird alien things called the old ones and the elves have told us all about it. And like the world was here before the gods were, and they sort of like show up in this weird other realm. And the gods are actually from this thing called the ether. Most of the cults went, no, that's impossible. That's garbage. The fact that chaos and magic and the gods all come to the same place. That's heretical nonsense. Volkmar hears this and goes, oh, okay. I accept that. I accept that is true because I believe you have done your research and you know what you're talking about. So tell me more about it. That also matches um, uh, the whole Sigmarite doctrine. Um, the Sigma, Sigmar is a young god. So everything that they said does not necessarily contradict core Sigmarite doctrine. Yeah. Where it did contradict, say, for example, Ulrican doctrine or Talite do- doctrine or Ryan doctrine that had a very different view on the creation of the world. And that is something Volkmar explicitly points out, is that he mm. says the, the unique position that we're in is that Sigmar is not a creation god. I don't care about all of these myths from the old time. We don't have to guess about Sigmar. We know about Sigmar. It was only 2,500 years ago. He was a mortal person. I don't have to imagine what Sigmar's life was like because he was a man. I am a man. I can empathize with my god because he was mortal. And there was nothing special about him other than he was a man doing the best that he could which Volkmar cares significantly for and finds a lot of faith in. And Volkmar goes on to say that uh, he basically takes what everything the colleges tell him of the, uh, granted the colleges, there are some very cheeky notes from Richter Kless, who is kind of falling to chaos at this point where he's adding in notes. Yeah. Kinda. (laughs) He's very fallen. Um, He's adding in notes on the margin about where he disagrees with Volkmar about a few things. But Volkmar is basically talking about how the colleges have taught him and the elves have taught them that the the gods are essentially these things that exist in the ether and that they are the emotions or ideas or concepts believed by mortals that then gain enough strength that they become sentient, they begin having effects on things and all this stuff. And Volkmar takes this information and goes, ah, well, I understand now, based on what I've learned, why Sigmar is the most powerful god and the greatest god. Because all of these other gods started off as these weird, very narrow focus concepts of like rage or hope or despair or a, the con- or like a river or like all of these other very narrow um, concepts that are worshipped into existence. Um, he goes, but Sigmar lived a full life. He he lived a full life. He developed emotionally. He got to understand other people. He goes through all this other stuff. And then as a full grown man, a fully developed soul, a fully comprehending entity, he then manifested into ether with all of that work already done. So he, he, Volkmar kind of plays the card that because Sigmar went into the ether as a God, after living a full mortal life, Sigmar basically showed up there 
and was able to consciously start manipulating the ether around himself and start drawing in the souls of everyone that had ever died in defense of the empire or anyone who had died in the sense of human superiority or uh, defending your family or all of these other like Sigmarite concepts and empowered himself, which allowed him to ascend rapidly to be like the most powerful God in Volkmar's opinion. And Volkmar <laughs> believes very strongly that of course, everything the elves say and everything the, all these other people say makes sense. And of course, all of the other cults and what they believe makes sense in that they don't see like, they don't understand like I do because they don't have all this information that I have. They haven't been talking to the cults. Like I think Volkmar literally says something along the lines of he doesn't blame all of the other cults or all of the other people of the empire because they're too uneducated. Like they don't have access to the wisdom that he does. They don't, they're not able to talk with the magisters of the colleges or they've been too heavily indoctrinated by the other cults, or they're frankly just too poor to afford a book or they can't read. And he has connected all of these dots and he goes, that's why it has to be Sigmar. That's why Sigmar has to overcome all of the other gods. Sigmar is the one preeminent God. And he's the only one that ultimately matters because he is a man who ascended to godhood and therefore is able to take advantage of the ether in a way that no other gods can because they didn't live lives like us they don't understand the materium like we do because they didn't live a life in it granted we'll talk about another god later who has we have some fun things to say about that next week yes but that is kind of and so we have all this information from the on that whole thing about volkmar which paints a fascinating picture of him of that. The cult of Sigmar, especially in like black library novels and stuff is very often portrayed as the most anti-magic cult, uh, which I will say there's a hilarious note about Volkmar in his treatise where he blames that on the Ulricans, which is so fucking funny. Um, he literally says something along the lines of uh, like the Sigmarite cult does like has missed out on so much knowledge because they hate on all the magisters. But then he puts a parenthesis and says, I will note that this is likely due to the fact that the empire used to be purely Olerkin and a lot of their aggressive tendencies have passed down to the Sigmarites over the generations, which is really funny, <laughs> especially considering that Midland like or Midheim has its own magical college that's been there for way longer. Um, but I, I do find it funny. He blames that on uh, the Ulrichans when that's not really a fair accusation on Volkmar's part, but he, he um, it, it does do a fascinating job of showing how interesting of a character he is and that he's really open to many different forms of knowledge, um, that would, so Sigmar is just human <laughs> so tech Volkmar equals to Hanuman. No, I mean, no, there, there, there are some very Luther no, Huss would be closer. Yeah, Luther Huss. It, to, to anyone is a full-on prophet. Um, yeah. to, to anyone is Luther not the character. Yeah, to anyone, you could not sit to anyone down and tell him something contradictory about so Sotek and expect it to go well. He would probably kill you and call you a heretic. Um, Volkmar would listen to you, which is different, and Volkmar would ex like would have a dialogue with you, um, which prophets don't tend to do <laughs> so to um uh just look at it slightly from the outside and what was done with this particular section the lore of sigmar the great human who became god the god king 
or alternatively Kona and Jesus, um, and exactly what that mortal became, uh, Vol Volkmar is used to show how the god that is Sigmar can match with and work within the template that was created by the original Realms of Chaos books, all the way back for Fantasy Roleplay First Edition and for Warhammer Third. Um, where the whole concept of the vortex of souls, the concept of the chaos gods and what they represent, and also showing how a god like Sigmar is not chaos, is actually in the same realm as the realm of the other gods, the chaos gods or whatever, but is discrete from and is not a part of those gods and how it exists within that realm and through that also explaining the other gods and how they also exist within that formation of what the aether is it is worth saying though very clearly that this is deeply into theory territory this is not something that is definitely the case the realms of chaos books painted it as a black and white almost god view this is actually the case that got significantly weakened over time so you'll find later editions instead say this is one way that it can work. And this piece here explains how Sigmar can work within that. But using Volkmar in particular to be the one to show that does a couple of very important things. One, it shows how heretical those views are and that the only one who's actually in a position to properly formulate and put it together is the one at the very top. The one who actually can. And they are relatively heretical views that he's working his way through. But it also repositions Volkmar as a character, as we discussed earlier. It gets a character who is thoughtful, who is willing to reach out to others, who is willing to discuss, to contemplate, and to reflect upon everything that he has learned, and then apply that, hopefully, to the next steps. This stands somewhat contrary to the character who rushes out on his great war altar and immediately assaults. Attack, attack, attack. That character is eroded significantly and given greater depth. In turn, that character, when it then gets popped over into the 8th edition, keeps those aspects. Um, Volkmar is now described in the 8th edition as quite clearly being a scholar, as someone who is looking deep into ancient libraries, attempting to understand the greater depths and really reality of nature and his own god and importantly what could damage the world as it currently stands and ultimately the ever chosen what is it what is sigmar and what do i have to do to manifest enough strength to face off against the great gods that are attempting to bring us all down it's one of the reasons why it could very easily see himself potentially as a champion of light or indeed anyone who is willing to go through the necessary steps to become it's almost not so much that he believes he's it it's that if he goes out and does the job he will become it rather than he is it and you can see that how those legends have all woven together and as he's looked at them he's gone i can use this to hopefully reach a point because if the other gods are nothing more than the expressions of certain emotions then that just means he needs to go off and be the center focal point of all of those emotions and stand against the ruinous powers that are attempting to end the world so you can loosely see where his thought process is going so you could even argue that much of his almost spitting sigmarite proselytizing his deep embedded faith being turned into nothing more than 
uh, a figure that others can't argue with is po possibly calculated. Mm. He himself may be a much deeper, much more thoughtful character, but he has to project himself in this way to uh, effectively, hopefully, stop the end of the world. Hey, Mandatis, I just spotted that one there. Uh, let's see. I do exceedingly, uh, I do love exceedingly rare chainswords and fantasy because chaos inspires some of my Cornet Demon Prince kit bashes. Also love Volkmar the Scholar. We do too. Thank you for the eight dollars. And yeah, uh, chainswords. Um, reading the second edition, uh, um, Tome of Corruption book when they go through all the mutations, it's really fun. The way they try and describe the chainswords to make them like fantasy esque while still obviously being chainswords is really funny. Um, yeah, and you'll find that this um, happens again and again throughout all of the books. Um, I was recently uh, discussing with someone behind the scenes that I won't say um, about some of the artifacts that were created for the Albion uh, campaigns. And they're all, <laughs> yeah. all, every single last one of them are 40k artifacts, yeah. um, artifacts of the old ones. And it speaks to um, a, a host of stories that when you look at it, you suddenly start getting... Well, doesn't that mean that something else must be the case because it's complicated? But that's, I think, a different and quite heretical stream. Yes. Um, <laughs> hey, Sam. Curious, curious, is there always a champion of light when an Everchosen comes knocking? That Depends on which version of the legend you believe. Yeah, um, this is sadly, um, more time says yes. Uh, Mordheim um, goes into it in some depth indeed, arguably it's where the concept came from in Games Workshop, I'd need to look into it to double check that point um, and they even have a nice little child of light that pops up through part of their background um, and it gets drilled down pretty hard um, through the course of 6th into 7th into 8th edition um, but it never really gets drilled down really hard as in this is a thing that has always occurred this is a thing that definitely happens although in places it states that clearly, so the answer is it will depend on the writer of the day. But if you're looking for an overall picture, probably, but they may not have understood of what was occurring. Yeah, I will say if Games Workshop explores any of the other Everchosens going forward, they will almost always probably have a Champion of Light figure that ends up yeah. dueling them at the end. I mean, that's just, that it's, it's Warhammer. There's it's always going to be a big, and, big bad duel at the end. Yeah, and even if it wasn't the case previously, it will probably be the case moving forward because ultimately it is about having a big bad fight. And that is a good way of ensuring that you get one. And it's very easy to say that um, if you're looking at prophecy, prophecy is nothing more than attempting to anticipate what is going to come. And at some point, the Everchosen has to be killed, which means at some point someone has to kill him which means at some point there is someone who is effectively the champion that is chosen to do so. So even if it didn't exist, the very fact that this is the way you end it would mean that it would be created by the people anyway. So I think that Games Workshop have no reason not to lean into that as a story because it's one that makes sense in-world as well as in terms of the background they're attempting to create and sell to other people. Yep. So the the last big thing uh, I want to talk about with Volkmar before we delve into like some item history and connections to Magnus and stuff um, is that one of the things that they I don't remember which edition they start mentioning it I know in eighth edition it's brought up before it ends up becoming a very big plot point for the end times is that Volkmar has uh, he is descended from a noble line but yep. he has a very important lineage uh, because Volkmar is <laughs> a direct descendant as it turns out of probably <laughs> probably uh which in the end times it says he just is explicitly yeah. no like, there's no there's no contesting it but, he is the end times is always the end times it's like yeah. that second 
walled off area. Yeah. So uh, in, yeah, in the, yeah. it's mentioned about it's it's in the army books. It's talked about that it's a rumor that he's a direct descendant of Sigmar Heldenhammer because Sigmar did have two sons. Um, not with the woman he loved, but with one of the tribal uh, chieftains who would later become an elector count, if you believe the uh, Sigmarite trilogy. But it's very heavily implied that at least with somebody, Sigmar had kids, but it was not his wife um, who was killed by who would later. Uh, As we discussed stream, Sigmar was an Ulrican. Ulricans yeah. are not for putting it about. <laughs> In any event, uh, Sigmar. Uh, he did have descendants, and Volkmar is believed to be one of, you know, of that line. Um, and uh, in the end times, they run very strongly with that. He's got the full-on blood of Sigmar running through his veins, which put, plays very heavily into why he's so powerful uh, with the whole Sigmarite thing, is that not only is he a fanatical believer, but he's also a direct descendant, which plays very strongly uh, into a lot of who he potentially could be. Um, now in eighth edition, uh, what's interesting is they have a slight pivot in Volkmar's storyline, which is that instead of him going on to fighting uh, the forces of chaos and eventually being killed by chaos, he ends up facing off against a different opponent, which is that he ends up going up against the undead. Um, oh, free, of course. Yeah, which, uh, <laughs> Which I do think the the timeline note they gave about him at the the river over the the Talbeck River, I believe that's supposed to kind of be an allusion to his whole storm of chaos thing, where he goes off and fights a chaos cult. Except for in that story, he wins instead of losing and dying because it's not led by Archeon. So of course Volkmar wins because it takes Archeon to kill him. Uh, but so what ends up happening, uh, which I'm not going to get super into it, I'm just going to tell the the little version is that one of the things. Uh, presumably, it's uh, your Mary Magdalene, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think good old Sigmar, um, definitely had his red Sonia Mary Magdalene out there somewhere. Um, although if we ever do a religious stream about Mary Magdalene, I have stories on that one because, mm, but let's just not do real world stuff, we don't yeah, need let's, that. Let's, let's, let's not, <laughs> let's um, not. <laughs> so, um, uh, the thing about Volkmar is that he they change Volkmar a little bit in eighth edition to being more of an over, like he's very obsessed with the apocalypse prophecy, but they also lean very heavily into that. He's a very fervent enemy of, you know, the enemies of Sigmar, which broadly speaking, uh, tend to fall into the trio of like chaos undead, undead. and yeah. And green skins. Those that's kind of like your, your triumvirate of big, big Sigmarite baddies. And so when rumors start coming about leading up to the end times that Manfred von Karstein has supposedly been spotted and that ah, he's running around and he's causing a lot of problems, Volkmar sends a witch hunter, uh, a super big badass witch hunter to go deal with him. And unfortunately for that witch hunter, he is successful in that he finds Manfred, but then he dies. <laughs> so Manfred kills him and Manfred is so kind as to have his body flown back to Altdorf and dropped in through the ceiling on the, the Reichland diet um, where Volkmar is at said meeting. <laughs> so this witch hunter's corpse lands in front of Carl Franz and all this other stuff. And it basically, there's a note on it from Manfred saying, fuck you guys, I'm back. Um, and Volkmar does exactly what he does in the storm of chaos. He gets up and he says, <laughs> fuck Manfred. 
Um, uh, fuck this dude. He's supposed to be dead. I'm going to go kill him. Who's going with me? And everyone kind of goes, eh, we're kind of busy right now. Um, can you not? <laughs> and Volkmar just won't be turned aside. Like he, a lot of people try and convince him not to go. Carl Franz tries to convince him not to go. Um, you know, being like, hey, we'll deal with it in due time. Like, uh, he, he like Balthazar Gelt tries to convince him not to go, but he tells everyone to fuck off. He's going to deal with it. And he marches off without any support. Much like the Storm of Chaos story, it, it's actually farcical. Um, for all the outcomes are potentially cool. He's the freaking Grand Theogenist. If the Grand Theogenist says, there's a great enemy down there, we need to go. Thousands upon thousands of loyal worshippers of Sigmar would go. Yeah. Entire knightly orders would uproot themselves because the Grand Theogenist controls them directly. There are uncounted hundreds of warrior priests who would gather from across the empire, bellowing prayers of Sigmar, holding their holy books, pulling militias, state regiments of all kinds, regardless of what an Electra Count may or may not prefer. The great fear of the Electra Counts is that the Grand Theogenist does something like this because it stands in direct contradiction to their authority. And importantly, the Grand Theogenist, who is a strong proponent of imperial authority, also perhaps shifts the cults. The idea that the rest of the uh, Electra Counts wouldn't go, okay, yeah, of course we'll give you some, just to make sure that his power is not fully manifest, is actually ridiculous. But nevertheless, this is about telling a story for an individual campaign. This is also about telling a story for Volkmar. But it is worth saying, in terms of the overall Warhammer world, if you're attempting to try and make this make sense for the Empire, there's a lot of rewriting and rejigging that needs to be done behind the scenes to make it all make sense. Because seriously, if Volkmar says run, a lot of people are going to say, yes! Yep, and Sigmar's Blood is a really stupid book in a lot of ways because um, <laughs> they, instead of just telling a story, they wanted the story to reflect the units you would be using, and it's a beginner set. It's mm -hmm. literally designed for you oh, to man. be a brand new player who's never done anything before. So you fight with teeny tiny armies, uh, like Volkmar. <laughs> the final battle between Volkmar and Manfred, I think, maybe has ten units on both sides. Like it's silly, but um, it the, is. The important parts of it, ignoring the stupid parts, is that Man <laughs> yeah. is that Volkmar leads an army to Sylvania, and he's very successful. Like Volkmar, full on purifies uh, a number of actually very well documented fortresses for the vampire counts. Um, there's that uh, bull fort. I forget what the name of the fort is. Um, there's the fort on the border of Overstire. Sterling. Yes, Overstire. yes, Overstire, which is yeah, like. I, I I created that. <laughs> yeah, which is, it, it is a infamous place in like yeah. the old lore, uh, which Andy created. Uh, and they yeah. did a really good job. Like it has an awesome fight scene in Sigmar's blood. Yeah, it's really and it's, cool. And Volkmar purifies it, which shows how fucking strong he is and that he's on the warpath. And he's like, I've had enough of this bullshit where it was one of the most cursed forts in Sterland. And Volkmar's like, nope, I'm going to spend like three days here and I'm going to purify the shit out of this thing. And he does which is awesome. And then he marches into Sylvania, big fight breaks out. And what's, what's interesting is the thing I do like is when he finally goes up against, I did not forget about Gorst. I chose not to talk about him. There's a difference. <laughs> Fucking Helmand Gorst. Um, we're not going to bother with Helmand Gorst today. Maybe another day. Uh, 
yes, he is. He, Helmut Gorse does make his one appearance in this story that somehow one and only somehow got him to be a playable character in total war i will especially important one at i will i will always hold as one of my uh, core memories the apology from the dlc team to my face when i visited them once about putting him in the game and i will appreciate that apology till the day i die but anyway so um they they knew they should have done dieter hellschnitt they fucked up on that one but it's in the straight we're moving on. Awesome. um anyway so uh, what's interesting is that in this kind of big final fight, um, Volkmar should have won. Like we do get a final battle scene where Volkmar goes toe to toe with Manfred and Manfred has a scheme because he's Manfred and he's always got fucking schemes going on, which Manfred really needs his own stream. Um, and then some, but, uh, Volkmar is really about to beat the shit out of Manfred. And Manfred knows he's about to get the shit beat out of him. Because if there's one thing the Light of Sigmar is good at, it's Greenskin's Undead and Chaos. If you are one of those three things and you're going up against Volkmar at full, like full on the war altar of all things, going full like, ah, he's going to beat your ass. I don't care who you are, unless you're Archeon. Fine. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, he, he, he's pretty good, but he's not all that. His character sheet was that. I mean, in terms of his stats, were never that awesome. Uh, I reckon I, Manfred would hand him his ass. <laughs> if you just look at neat stats, Manfred hands him his ass. My, um, but Volkmar isn't going to run away anything. Spicy. Pretty, <laughs> but pretty spicy. He's not that spicy. True. Manfred is freaking ridiculous. He's a vampire. He's one of the most powerful sorcerers in the world. And um, I think diminishing him is. Uh, unfortunate. I think that the reason that Volkmar is almost his antithesis in this particular case is less because of his stats, though, and more because of the fact he's a divine fucking representation of Sigmar. And I think everything that Sotek says does actually apply because yeah. if he goes face to face with him, uh, he will be much more than he normally would be because of that uh, connection. Um, meaning that any vampire worth his salt would probably want to retreat before facing that anytime soon. Having said that, though, he is ultimately just a man. Manfred really isn't. He's yeah. way beyond that. Yeah, Manfred's way beyond even a vampire, to be frank. But uh, yeah, anyway, he, so... Not a normal vampire. Yeah, Manfred wins because at that moment, he pulls off his big ultimate scheme, which is that he casts a ritual that basically disables divine magic in all of Sylvania. And without which divine magic... Fascinating yeah. when you actually consider what that means. Yes, um, but functionally, that turns Volkmar into just a man. Um, and he's an old man at that. Um, yeah. And although, like, he would... He's a badass still. Um, like there's a little short story about him after that, where even without his prayers, he still beats the shit out of exactly. a bar guys. Yeah. But that's, that is where we're going to say the end of Volkmar's story. Uh, of course. I don't know if I'm the one that's lost connection or whether it's him. Oh, we back. We good. Are we back and good? Um, you disappeared there for a second, or I yeah. disappeared, one or the other. Somebody did. Um, yeah. okay. We're back. Uh, Life is good. Hi, everyone. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so Volkmar dies then very early in the end times, and his body, he literally gets turned into Nagash. Um, his 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 arm gets chopped off, and Nagash's hand gets put on him, and they put all of Nagash's stuff on him, and the big ritual is cast, and he literally turns into Nagash, which was a brutal 
brutally unfair death for Volkmar. Um, yeah, it was. I I I actually thought there was quite a fun, brutal, unfair death in there, in that some manifestation of Sigmar's lost line being repurposed to bring back um, a different god. And I thought that there was something in that that was quite fun. Um, I'm, I wasn't so happy with generally the whole setup because, the, as I mentioned earlier, the setup for the Cult of Sigmar is massive and then they f effectively go, there's this just one man wandering around. And it really diminishes the Empire. It diminishes the Cult of Sigmar. It diminishes everything they represent when they focus on just this one individual, forgetting that he is the spiritual leader for millions Hmm. literal millions and if he goes somewhere millions will follow sylvania would have been swamped if that's what they wanted to occur it would have been a horror show and that i think could have made an even better story if manfred pulls off his crazy ritual and then we have death by the millions there could have been a really cool story but it was a different story they were going for because yeah. they were just pitching basically a small little campaign sigmar's blood book oh look and here's volkmar on the battlefield and, and here's a vampire and they have a big fight you can play that at home that'll be a lot of fun um and it's one of those situations where they've used the warhammer world because they that's what they're there for the warmer world is a tool for them to sell their next game but in terms of the overall function of the empire it just felt like such a waste of the potential of the empire storyline and that was the basis that then became the end times so those steps had already been taken so attempting to then try and pull back the empire to what it should be it wasn't going to happen because those stories were the foundation point for the next set of stories. So poor old, uh, <laughs> poor old Nagash yeah. gets so, out from that. Oh man, we're, we're gonna we're gonna throw that all in the trash bin where it belongs and get back yeah, to the interesting stuff. Uh, which is uh, the next thing that's really interesting to talk about. Volkmar, I think, is really breaking down his items in the war altar itself. Um, which because the Jade Griffin uh, really ties in with the uh, that story, I think the Staff of Command is where we should start. Uh, yeah, we actually, missed it earlier no, when we through some no, of this stuff. Yeah, no, we should start with the actual. That's not really simple though, because it's basically the staff of office for the Grand Theogenist, and it empowers those who carry it. I mean, there's more you can say, but it's a good start. Yeah, that, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's where Volkmar gets his like, goes from mean old man oh. strength to like, I'm going to crack open a steam tank strength. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, funny enough, a lot of people, when you see Volkmar, you'll, you may notice he has like a staff and a hammer. The hammer is actually not anything important. It's the staff. <laughs> That's the important bit. Um, which is, which is crazy, really. Um, uh, it, it arguably should have been, um, the other way around. After all, he is a manifestation of the Warhammer bearer. If there was ever a magical Warhammer bearer to be about, it's him. Um, uh, more so arguably than even the emperor himself. But uh, him not having at any point a magical Warhammer seems crazy. Yeah, uh, it's 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 goofy, but what are you going to do? So the War Altar, very interesting device that opens a lot of questions about prior Grand Theogenes. Because the mm -hmm. War Altar is, of course, the most iconic thing about Volkmar, besides his mustache and his bald head, which is that it's this giant armored wagon with a giant fucking griffin statue on it. Um, yeah. that has incredible power, like hmm. staggering amounts of power. 
it is so strong that uh like andy said in the original edition it just made him a, practically a fucking wizard, wizard. <laughs> and in later editions it greatly empowers him it makes his prayers very difficult to stop and yep. in the late last few editions and that's just fucking cash banishment which is the big bad spell from the lore of light it's a yep. super scary spell and volkmar is just throwing that shit out there because of the uh the the golden griffin behind him yeah and i do really like um the complexity it adds to the overall world building for the cult of sigmar because no matter which edition you go through, although really it's mostly beginning and end, but there's still a strong connection to magic throughout, which I find particularly fascinating. Yes. And so the other thing that's very interesting is that the War Altar, while you may look at it and go, oh, Grant Theogenist, it's only been around since Magnus. It was yep. built after Magnus defeats uh, Azvar Kool. Uh, yep. Unfortunately, Magnus did not ride it into battle, at least not until after Asvarkul, which is not as cool, but it, you know, as fun as the mental images that would make. But what's fascinating is that when you look at it, you may think that, oh, that's been around since the time of Sigmar. No, it's very recent, super recent, in fact, as is the Jade Griffin, the, the little yep. uh, Jade thing that he wears. Very recent. The only thing that seems to have really been passed down through generations of Grand Theogenes is the staff, is the staff um, which itself was not as powerful because it draws power from the war altar from the altar because what's fascinating does, if he's not on the war altar doesn't get all the benefits yeah what's fascinating about the war altar is uh it seems localized around the griffin itself is mm. the war altar is a magical locus it is a very fucking bizarre contraption that seems to draw in the winds of magic or at least hish um, to an obscene degree and stores it, which is very fucking weird when you know the background of how magic and all that shit works. It's I mean, arguably, it's not weird at all. It's basically exactly what Teclis says it would be the case. Yeah, well, I, I, th I think it's odd in that it was built kind of in Magnus's image, and there doesn't seem to be like runic script on it. There doesn't seem to yep. be anything about it that should make it such a powerful locus yet it is in that it seems to have center just kind of, of yeah it's become a center of faith that just yeah. because yeah. of that it's it's a, it's idol worship in a sense um it's, of that it just draws things in yeah it's just it's a super fascinating artifact because it's um a classic example of an artifact that was made um to fulfill a particular job on the battlefield without any real consideration for what the theological and magical implications of what they had built in the studio would have. And then as each edition has gone by, saddled with the previous edition's version, they've added a tiny bit of lore here and there, but not very much, and still ended up with largely the same artifact. But now an artifact that stands contrary to what many would expect it to be. If you were to just create it today, and just go, this is going to be an ancient Sigmarite device that has been used for however long. It'd probably be a good thousand, thousand five hundred years old. Perhaps even related all the way back to something that Johann Hellstrom did 2,500 years ago. Mm. Who knows? It will have some sort of deep, long legacy, but that's not the case. We've got ourselves an artifact, which it's hard to say is not a magical artifact that draws and it works off Hish. It's almost like it was designed by the colleges of magic yeah and uh it isn't 
Yeah. Yeah. It looks like it. That, that That's the thing that's kind of extra spicy about it is that when you look at it and research its creation, it doesn't seem like it was intended to be a magical artifact. It wasn't, at least on the outside, it doesn't appear that it was designed to draw in the winds. It doesn't have any like elven um, runes on it, dwarfen runes. There's no mention of the college is helping, and yet it draws in magic like a motherfucker. <laughs> um, yeah. And in many ways, it seems, I think the best way to describe it is it is literally a modern icon of the worship of Magnus. Yeah, um, and I think it's also worth saying, as I recall in 8th edition, I might need to check this up, but as I recall in 8th edition, um, the War Altar is a separate artifact to Volkmar. So if you've got the army list there, that'd be really yes, handy. And it can be purchased separate and is not tied to Volkmar. Um, uh, others can ride it. And indeed, the suggestion is there's multiple War Altars and this is the rule for them. And that, if anything, is even more fundamental. I'd need to double check that's the case because it's been a wee while so, since so I made a, my last so Empire eighth, Army. So yeah, so in 8th edition, they say that there's only one War, war Altar. It is a singular Thanks. piece, but it can be ridden by either Volkmar but, or an Arc Lector. Arc Lector, that's it. Thanks. I couldn't yeah. recall. Yeah, but it's it, been yeah, so it's read that one. Because there's only one, you can only have one per army because there's only one in existence. Yeah, that's good. It's a bit like the steam tanks, limited numbers. Um, yeah. So uh yeah, but you're you right, go. Uh, the staff of command, it only works if it's on the war altar, even in eighth yeah. edition. If he's on foot, it doesn't or on a mount, uh, it doesn't get any benefit at all. Anything. Yeah, it does nothing. Um, yeah, the whole thing reeks of something going on behind the scenes. And it's the sort of shit that those of us who are on the role-playing side of things can't help but go, so there's a story here. Mm -hmm. There has to be, because this doesn't make sense. It actually doesn't. You can come up with justifications, but each one is a different story with a different potential outcome. And for those of us on the role-play sides, it's almost exciting because you can suddenly go, well, here's a story I want to tell. I want to try and explain what that is. And the second you explain that, it starts explaining broader things about potentially the cult as a whole, about everything that is Sigmarism. And that is also super fun, particularly given how important uh, Sigmarism is to some of the most important campaigns of Warhammer Fantasy roleplay. And that would never have existed if it wasn't for Volkmar the Grim being there. I mean, at the very core of Warhammer Fantasy roleplay's primary campaign, The Enemy Within, is the whole idea that Sigmar isn't a god at all. And it's all magic. And this artifact supports that theory. And that's a theory that is posited by Chaos Cults and other folks, but posited because of people like Teclis, who also believed that. And that is a super fascinating aspect of how you can re attempt to retell these tales, largely because, as we all know, it's bullshit. Um, <laughs> and exactly why it is believed, why these things exist, how it comes about, and what Sigmar actually is, is a really interesting story to tell. And I don't like pinning down answers on them in the overall umbrella of it as we're sitting here with our god view looking down on all of the stories that are told there's not an actual answer presented by the background but there is hundreds of potential answers you could use in your own individual games what we can say for certain is is that volkmar is a badass and does seemingly use magic yes and uh, the 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 other thing about um, the war altar that's really interesting. Uh, the and Volkmar as seemingly a magic wielder is the Jade Griffin, 
which was made <laughs> at the same time as the war altar. And for whatever reason, uh, they, they give some light explanation behind it. But for whatever reason, Magnus, I guess, really liked Griffins um, or whoever. It's the symbol of the Bildhofen line. Um, Griffins is. Uh, so Magnus, uh, Magnus the Pious comes like, from House Bildhofen. One, so. <laughs> yeah, House Bildhofen. Um, uh, Bildhofen, one of the big noble lines of the Empire. And the Bildhofens are directly related to Sigmar also, just to make things a little bit more complicated. Um, and Magnus is a direct descendant of Sigmar. When you take away all the trappings and the doubt or whatever, it's said in several places that he is. Hmm. Um, and one of the symbols of his household is the griffin. And that eventually becomes one of the primary symbols of Nuln, the great city of Nuln that Magnus adored. It was Magnus's hometown, so to speak. And griffins are all over that city because of that. But that's because of House Bildhofen and because of Magnus. There you go. So... Uh, not only did they create the war altar, which is a big griffin that's holding a vague approximation. Me, uh, no, Bildhofen. <laughs> Beethoven? <laughs> um, so not only do you have this giant fucking gold griffin that's holding a big approximation of Galmaraz, uh, but you also have the jade griffin, which is made literally of jade, uh, which is a very rare material in the empire. Um, yeah. Often has to be imported. Um I mean, is it made of jade? Yeah. It, or is it jade magic? Yeah. So that's the interesting thing is that supposedly um, in the later editions, it just says it's made of jade. In the earlier editions, it, it purport, it almost kind of is doing like the, it's not warp stone wink thing that they like to do. But um, what's interesting about jade as material, especially with the new lore we've been getting with Grand Cathay is that jade is a big, big, big conductor of magic. It draws magic to it, it like crazy. Um, and it is one of the best conductors of magic next to like gold and um, like a uh, very few other materials that are like that good when it comes to uh, drawing magic to you uh, to the point where we have like the jade lion being a big literal construct that draws magic to it um and allows people it stores magic in it that can then be used by nearby allied wizards which is yeah. very similar to what volkmar is doing because what the jade griffin does is that it is a reservoir of jade magic in that it literally heals the bearer to an obscene degree um again i should check the current armulus because i remember it is in its original incarnation it was a carved piece of jade that drew magic directly from the war altar yeah and, and that's then still the case and then it said, and if it's still doing that, then we have ourselves. Um, because I haven't read the uh most recent one for ages, but if that's still the case, then if we're talking about the metaphysics of what's actually going on here, we've got an altar that is attracting all the winds of magic, and some of these winds of magic are being utilized by artifacts. One of the artifacts is the one that he holds in his hand, it provides him with extra strength, it provides him with extra toughness, extra capability. If the Jade Griffin is also drawing from that, that means it's drawing up the Jade magic and it's healing, giving him regeneration. Um, and as I recall, for his rules in eighth edition, he gets at regeneration. And um, for yes. fourth edition, he healed at the end of every round. Um, that's yeah, again so working from my memory. The the biggest change they made going into the later editions is that the Jade Griffin is specifically called out as being enchanted, as in it was made enchanted. by wizards. That's even worse. <laughs> yeah, and that it it and uh, that it, which I think the reason they did that is it allows it to work whether he's on the war altar or not. 
Uh, whereas yeah, in the older editions, he has to be on the war altar, isn't it? Uh, in the it's, new editions, actually fascinating. Yeah, in the new editions, it heals him no matter what, no matter where he is, as long as he's wearing it. He's yeah. And that was the version that um, I used when I um, was mentioning some of the sil the seals that were used that used fragments of the Jade Griffin. Um, so yeah, I was um, about to bring up. Yeah, there's bits of uh, there are bits of Jade Griffin all over the place, all of which have got healing capabilities and potentials. Um, and they, some of these are uh, well, they're pretty much crafted into the holy seals of Sigmar um, that they place on, allowing um, the person on the receiving end to potentially heal if they've got the classic red seal with a prayer parchment hanging out of it of, of uh, sigmar some of which actually have shards and fragments of the jay griffin because the jay griffin over the course of the last so many hundred years has been hit a lot um yeah. and that has fragmented small parts of it off um but you know that's yeah, i mean if that's uh, the case it's it's possibly if you're looking at it purely for what it is rather than what they claim it is um, if it is an enchanted piece of jade, then it is nothing more than a repository of jade magic, which is drawing from the uh, life around it. And if it's on the war altar, it'll just have a constant charge of it. Yeah, it just gets supercharged. It's basically just a magic artifact. Yeah, and uh, despite yeah. the fact it's supposed to just be a religious icon, um, yeah, and it's 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 so potent because you're right in that there's a magic item in all of the editions, except eighth edition, which unfortunately cut the magic item list down a lot because for stupid reasons, but um, because they wanted to make the items more in the core book, but in all of the editions except for eighth because they cut it down, the uh, you could get a piece of the Grand Theogenist Jade uh, Jade Griffin as the Jade amulets, which say that the Grand Theogenist, when a piece breaks off he hands them out to people who have yeah. demonstrated themselves and, to be particularly awesome. And they, they give you regeneration. Like they heal. Your yeah. Wounds. And that's that. And that was furthered in the role play game with a whole bunch of smaller fragments that were dropped down into the purity seals. Um, so there's, there's basically a Jade artifact from the Jade college. That is yeah, worn which, by like Andy said is bonkers because it's that bonkers. means the war altar is literally, it's not just drawing in Hish. It's drawing in all the winds, seemingly. And Volkmar is able to tap into different winds of magic for different yep. things. Where he's unleashing yep. banishments, which is Hish, yep. he's able to heal himself to an yep. obscene degree, which is life. And he's empowering the hell out of himself to the Staff of Command, which is debatably like Gur or Akshi. And you can you can argue that um, all eight winds are doing various things throughout the course of the editions for how each of the artifacts that he's, he's a witch. Using. <laughs> um, so uh, whether uh, they are just artifacts, whether there is something else going on, whether he himself is not what he thinks he is or others don't. There's lots of fun tales that can be told there. But what we can say for certain is that Volkmar himself very much believes in Sigmarism. He believes he is empowered by Sigmar, and he also believes that he potentially could be the savior of the world itself, but he's not arrogant enough, at least in his latest version, to think that he definitely is. He was arrogant enough during the Storm of Chaos version of himself, where he was quite convinced that he probably was going to be the child of light. No one else was willing to make those steps. And if he didn't do it, it's quite possible that uh, Archeon would become too powerful to stop. So he was effectively doing a preemptive strike, which is one of the reasons why he rumbled <laughs> north with the Calipine forces. Um, so what, cut a long story say, short, there's some complication there. 
Yeah, one of the things that I thought was really interesting um, about the Storm of Mad, the Storm of Chaos version that I liked a lot is that in some ways Volkmar's not wrong in the sense that him setting off and getting killed is what finally gets through everybody's fucking head that Archeon is here and he is a yeah. genuine threat. Um, yeah, and it's not just something they can paddle around. It's like, oh fuck, he just killed the Grand Theogenist. Yeah, totally. And uh, in many respects. I'm a little disappointed that the Storm of Chaos was sidelined. Um, uh, I think it would have been a better <clears> overall tale if they just made one clean amendment, and that's the Archeon part. Yeah, they really you know, they should have, what they should have done is they should have just made it one of Tarmacon's brothers. Like, I yeah. wish they had kept going with that. Just made it one of Tarmacon's brothers, well, and you're done. Archeon kills him in the north. They come sweeping down with Bellacor and whomever else. They get defeated. Okay, that's the first incursion for that year, and then next year others are coming until eventually the incursion with Archeon himself comes down. The Archeon who had already killed the Grand Theogenist, a Grand Theogenist who is now possibly sitting back in Altor, a very different figure. There's a really cool story in there. Um, uh, but they they sort of just they just muddied it and they patted it down and they didn't really yeah, think it was, it was sort of other bits, and it all became a bit murkier. Um, well, but yeah, there was a pretty cool story in there somewhere. Yeah, I mean the 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 thing about Volkmar that would have been so fascinating about that as well, which one of like the Black Library books that take place and the roleplay books that take place after the Storm of Chaos are so fucking good because yeah, they tackle really a lot of how the soul of the Empire is so shaken by the fact that they lost. Like they just yeah. they lost. The only reason they survived is because of greenskins and vampires. Uh, they got yeah. saved by fucking Manfred and they got saved by Grimgore. And it wasn't Sigmar that saved them, as far as they could tell. And how that would affect the cult of Sigmar, how would that affect all the cults of that their gods failed them? And Arkham yeah, would have destroyed was, Midnheim. The whole thing was almost a good story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, like the it's like the Star Wars prequels. The whole thing is almost a good story. In fact, it is a good story. It's just the execution of it was not great. Yeah, but it, does, it doesn't take that many edits to make it good. No, it doesn't. It's nice. Yeah. I mean, some um, of the there's quite a lot of post Storm of Chaos stuff that I really, really dig. Um, they've spent a lot of time thinking about what the effects would have, and it's a very different empire. It's one of the reasons I like second edition because it didn't invalidate first edition, it just told a different story, and that's on the role play side. So, first edition was very much the uh enemy within chaos is a distant threat, no one really believes it's real. Second edition is very much a real threat, but it's made them ignore the enemy within. Um, and it's because they're all they, mm. they can see the big enemy without now, and that's what they're fighting, and sometimes still fighting, meaning that they don't quite catch um the enemy that lies within beside them. And it's also a broken, fragmented version of the empire, which is potentially a far grimmer setting. Um, it's uh it's different and fun, and I really like it. And I'm a little sad to see that both of them were invalidated and kind of ended by the later editions. <laughs> Volmar just starts right. painting himself green. <laughs> Volmar the green. <laughs> and um, they are painted in red and green, the knights, the color of the Knights Griffin. Uh, but man, oh, I'm just scratching in disguise there. Stop that, Andrew. Bad, oh, yeah. bad, bad. Yeah, but so look at the hour. We should get onto questions before oh, we... Uh... Yeah, I, honestly, I completely forgot. I'd actually forgotten myself. I was too busy <laughs> waxing lyrical. Like, look oh, at the we're time. so good on time. Like, I Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Early. Then suddenly panic hits. Holy crap. Oh, shit. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. We're going to okay. quick fire through these, which as you all know for me is really hard. Yeah. Okay, let's go. 
Uh, let's see. Uh, what did the other cults of the empire think of Volkmar? Okay, that's actually a genuinely cool question. That's that a really cool question. So I'm going to try and do this really fast. You've got the Grand Conclave, which Volkmar himself attends, which means that the heads mm. of the other cults don't just know him. They have spoken with him and found him to be the hardline Sigmarite that he is. Speaking in general without going into specific cults, he is a hardline Sigmarite who will be seen as a constant thorn in their side, particularly because he is also intelligent, which means that he is someone that they can almost get annoyed by. It's like, can't he see that he's wrong? It's not like he's stupid. He's <laughs> just wrong, um, which means that for most of the cults, he will be a figure um, that is quite objectionable for a variety of reasons. Uns perhaps surprisingly, though, he is probably out of all the Grand Theogenists, one of the few that would probably maybe get on with Valgir, um, the R, R. Ulrich of the Cult of Ulrich, because they are both very aggressive in terms of their personal choices. For all, Volk, uh, Volkmar is still a Sigmarite where defense comes first. Yeah, I think one thing that would get Volkmar in trouble with a lot of the cults in like in the sense that like they would they would respect him but also kind of despise him is that he very much views all of them as oh y'all were critical steps into Sigmar becoming who he is but I'm bringing this are... up because oh yeah we, we so didn't we... cover it yeah and you asked this earlier Kabanda and I apologize because we didn't cover that yeah we well, got well, so uh, caught up with yeah. everything else there I'll, I'll answer that in just a second but uh I, I think Volkmar's view that they all are kind of leading into Sigmar and that like everything that they represent is it a critical part of what makes Sigmar the most important? I think that would probably come through in some of the ways Volkmar would oh. talk, uh, which would probably piss him off, off the wrong way. Um, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. he'd be like, really oh, yeah, you were very important. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I've, I've written a couple of bits about on that, about um, how basically the top side of the cult of Sigmar very much believe that all humans should really probably only be worshipping Sigmar. Yeah, um, uh, for a, a variety of reasons. Supporter. Yeah, Volkmar, yeah. like in his treatise, he full on says that the only reason we're polytheistic is because people are uneducated. Yeah, um, um, and that's that is absolute nonsense. Yeah. Um, and uh, should be called out for the nonsense that it is and will be by the other cults because it is objectively nonsense. But that doesn't mean he doesn't believe it. That doesn't mean that uh, the position that he has is, from his perspective, not one hundred percent correct. Oh yeah, he'd be a figure uh, of some content. So the Heldenhammer, uh, the Heldenhammer <laughs> a is it, it's the big bad super kick-ass ship uh, of the uh, Dreadfleet expansion that was meant to be the direct ship that goes up against Noctilus. It's got a hilarious giant statue of Sigmar, full with full <laughs> with action figure hammer bashing. Um, it's got a giant Galmaraz on the front that has chains that can be triggered that literally loud. Yes, see the hammer down. there. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, yeah, it's it's which like to to put that model into perspective, there is a full size cathedral of Sigmar on that ship. Yeah, um, there is. Uh, it uh, is. It, it's more like a um. It's more like a forty k space vessel, to be honest, than a actual naval ship. It's goofy how big it is. Um, yeah. So yeah, the you can see there's a fully sized cathedral that makes up part of the ship because it's that big. Um. So Volkmar, that was a gift to him. Um. <laughs> that was meant to help represent his authority and be kind of one of the crowning jewels 
of the uh, the Imperial fleet, which if you know about the Empire Navy is kind of hilarious because it doesn't really get used that much. Uh, Volkmar does appear in the Dreadfleet novel because uh, Captain Diego Roth actually comes to Volkmar. Like he fully comes on, gets on his knees, and he actually meets Volkmar on uh, the Heldenhammer because it has only very recently been completed. And yep. Volkmar is planning to use it to fight against the forces of chaos. He wants to go north. And Roth comes to him and tells Volkmar. Yeah. And <laughs> Roth comes to him and tells him about the Maelstrom and um Count Noctilus and all this other stuff. And Volkmar Volkmar is portrayed very well in that he absorbs all this information. He allows Roth to make his full thing. And he goes, All right, so you're a pirate, a very infamous pirate lord who has done a lot of illegal shit you've done a lot of things that i could have you executed for right now and you come to me and are asking me to divert a massive amount of resources and soldiers and my ship which is extremely powerful and expensive to go fight a supposed vampire pirate who lives in a mythical other realm that is terrorizing the seas because he killed your dad get the fuck off my ship. <laughs> it's basically how it goes. Uh, Volkmar says something to him with the effect of like, I believe you, but you need to understand that chaos is the preeminent threat, not some vampire pirate. And Roth goes, all right, fine. And he leaves and then he steals the ship and fucks off with it. <laughs> and the Heldenhammer is lost, which is hilarious. Um, and I think if you actually are playing fourth edition, there's some art in the Altdorf art that you can see the Heldenhammer in the background. Um, as it's uh, either about to be complete or is uh, something like that. But it's it gets stolen by a Roth, and it's eventually destroyed during the big fight in the Maelstrom. It is. Goodbye, ship. It sinks. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe that's why Volkmar ultimately didn't end up going north and dying, because he lost his ride. <laughs> so he died in Sylvania instead. Yeah, quite. Uh, how would the distant faiths such as the great orthodoxy or Ki or, of Kislev or the uh, the uh, the followers of the Lady in Bretonia deal with Volkmar? They probably wouldn't get along. Yeah, it's, uh, again, it's... Um, he's diplomatic, but stern. Yeah, yeah well, he's you know, Volkmar the Grim. Um, he leads millions, millions upon millions. Um, he is on a different level of power to any cult except for maybe the cult of Myrmidia which is arguably the biggest in the old world. Um, in fact, is the biggest in the old world. Uh, the uh, Lady of the Lake is small beans to him. Yeah. And Kislev doesn't really matter, um, particularly given the orthodoxy is relatively new in terms of exactly how it presents itself. This, these are just new religious schisms that he will be aware of. He's got an entire lecture for dealing with Kislev. It's a below, significantly below his concern. The lecture of Kislev deals with that. Um, so that's uh, someone whose job is to effectively monitor, handle, and deal with lecture, uh, pardon me, uh, Sigmarite concerns in Kislev. So yeah, it's beneath him loosely. Yep. And big thing, he's he cult of Sigmar. He's worried about empire, empire affairs. He doesn't really give a shit what's going on outside, unless it's a threat yeah. to the empire. Absolutely. Uh, if Volkmar found out Gelt was a heretic, uh, what would the punishment be? Oh well, I mean, he'd burn him at the stake if he could. Uh, interestingly enough. Whether or not uh, Volkmar was the supreme, uh, the Grand Theogenist during the Von Horseman incident has changed a lot in the lore. In the, the modern lore, he was not the Grand Theogenist when the whole thing with Von Horseman happened. Whereas if yeah. you go read like the Egrim Von Horseman book, it says that he was. He was. 
Um, yeah, um, Egram is a character of deep, deep, deep lore issues. Um, and <laughs> he's all over the place. He's all over the place. Um, and uh, all we can say to that is um, if someone like this, the Supreme Patriarch uh, was found to be, let's say, heretical, it would be directly of his concern that um, the, he is the Archlector of Altdorf as well as being the Grand Theogenist, which means as Archlector, it is actually his domain to look after the Colleges of Magic. Um, this is his job. Um, and now he delegates that to others at almost all times. But when it came to a pronouncement of that magnitude, it would be his job. And he would be the one that um, would be responsible for administering it. Yeah, um, he is. He tends to be pretty pro colleges. But if anything, it would probably put him in a bit of a spot politically because he views the colleges of magic as a very important tool for the empire. But if a if a Supreme Patriarch was discovered to be a heretic, that would be really bad for the guys. Really bad. Um, yeah, really, really bad, particularly given what had happened with uh, Van Horstman previously. It would be almost the death knell of the colleges as we know today. Yep. Uh, okay, we've already answered Volkmark on his items yep. by yeah. becoming Grand Theogenist. Um, uh, why does Games Workshop apparently hate Volkmar? They keep crucifying, sacrificing, or transforming him into horrible monsters. That's a great because question. They want to show how bad their big bads are. Um, yeah. And the best way to show their Volkmar's big bad is bad <laughs> is by killing a character or by hurting a character that is not as important as the character they're focusing on. And typically they focus on Carl Franz. So how do they make uh, Bellacor look bad? How do they make Archeon look bad? Okay, they have them um, <laughs> defeat Volkmar so that someone else can come along and defeat them later. It is a lazy writing device, particularly given that Volkmar, should he take to the battlefield, would almost always be supported by so many more than Games Workshop generally consider the Cult of Sigmar would bring to bear. Yeah, there is something to be said that if you were writing had a good writer there is something to be said with volkmar dying does hurt the cult of sigmar and causes a schism um oh, yeah. but his death would be a much more major and involved event than either stories ended up doing yeah i agree so um uh, I, I i fear they were poorly tackled what is volkmar's opinion on norska are they just bad guys to him would he hold it against someone if they were from norska even if they were good people by the standards of the empire um, that one's pretty easy. Uh, the Norse people were driven from the Empire by Sigmar, and that's often um, uh, equated with them already being a fallen group. So thus, they were driven from the Empire's borders all the way back during Sigmar's era. Norska are outsiders like any others. Many of them have fallen, not all. Would they speak against Norska in general? Yes. Would that be the general cult position? Yes. Does that mean that they are all bad? No. Yeah. If anything, I think Volkmar would actually exult in opportunities to convert other populations to Sigmarism if he could. Like if he met yeah. a Norskin living in the Empire, his reaction would probably be like, okay, make sure you're not a cultist. You're not. Okay. Hey, have you considered our Lord and Savior Sigmar? <laughs> um, <laughs> Although having said that, though, he wouldn't even deign to speak to them. He's the freaking Pope. It's not like he just wanders around speaking to people on the street if you were a pc um, and you're doing very well for yourself and you're a norskin character that yes. happens to meet volkmar that's probably how it would go down <laughs> indeed <laughs> uh, uh let's see um what's the oh this is a good question for gree what's the dirtiest scheme volkmar had to do in order to protect the empire of the emperor Karl franz 
Uh, See, he's not being presented that way as I look yeah. through his various... I, I would say probably like the dirtiest thing we see him up to is supporting Huss. Um, if you want to look at it in that way. But that's not dirty. I well, mean, in many respects, you could argue that that's nothing more than cleansing the cult of the non-Sigmarite aspect I would say it's of it. messy. It's messy, I agree, yeah. but dirty? I mean, um, he's, as a figure, he is particularly devout, and he does what he believes is right. And dirty tricks, the realm of, say, Ronald, I don't even think Volker not his lies. province. Yeah. Pardon? I don't think Volker yeah. lies, to be honest. I, I don't think he does either. He's not that sort of guy. Um, so uh, I, I, my answer to this one would probably be, yeah, nah. I, the only thing I could see him doing is if there was a faction within the cult that was enough of a threat that they tried to genuinely assassinate him, um, and he had to deal with it personally. That would probably oh, he, be unpleasant. He, he, I think he would. He's 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 very strident. Yeah, but would, that wouldn't that wouldn't would be very backstabby. It would be more like him being like, "You're a threat. I'm going to deal with it." Hammer. Yeah, indeed. And um, uh, in general, um, that would involve other people doing it not him anyway he's the grand theogenist he doesn't do this sort of stuff that's handled by the vast he's got a cult i mean in altdorf alone there are thousands upon thousands of clerics thousands mm. of them not one or two not 50 not 100 thousands in altdorf alone all of which have a myriad of jobs the he has people to do this on his behalf he's got an entire sections of his cult to deal with uh rooting out heretics or people who are working against the cult as a whole um he's got the order of the cleansing flame at the very least they make mm -hmm. the witch hunters look like babies yeah, um it's like, uh, yeah totally so i uh, yeah the, you the gotta remember he's really high up in the echelons of this yeah the only thing i would say really is high. like if you wanted to ascribe something dirty to him is that he probably studiously turns a blind eye to certain factions within the cult of sigmar that themselves are very dirty yeah I mean, the, the biggest issue he has is politics yeah yeah uh let's see uh does volkmar have any knowledge about the lizard or anything like that probably not really at all unless unless it ties into his understanding of like the world from like speaking with elves or the colleges yeah. of magic like he'd probably be interested in stuff about the old ones but like the yeah. lizard as a whole probably not very much yeah, totally. I mean, it's not like he's sitting there studying lizardmen. They mean nothing to him. Um, will he be aware of them in the loosest of sense? Uh, does he have material to hand that he could learn about them? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, he it's all sitting there down the libraries of Sigma. Um, there, there is literally all the books he needs to know about it down there, so, which means that he'll be aware of some of it because he's a very studious man. But where he is studying is mostly what most would consider utterly heretical lore. Yeah. Uh, utterly heretical the lore that he's looking into is the sort of lore that the cult burns mm. uh, you know you gotta remember volkmar is at the top and can make, do these things it's one of the reasons why he's such a fascinating figure because he's almost certainly to a degree corrupted by the very knowledge oh, that he needs yeah, to I learn would, yeah, to do his job unless he's pure and if he's completely pure it, there's a lovely there's a lovely juggling act going on I don't on think here. anybody's that pure. <laughs> yeah, quite. Um, and that makes it more fun. Yeah. Uh, do we know what Volkmar's most dangerous threat he ever fought in a battle was and how he managed to kill it? Uh, we don't get any cool action shots with Volkmar, unfortunately, but he did kill a Chaos Lord, so I'm just, that was, um, that I was pretty spicy. Oh, he was in a battle report at one point, so they wrote a, um, 
they wrote about it there, but it wasn't really that big and nasty. It was just a, a, an event just to show off the army. Um, He's probably faced down most of your most notable, like orc warlords, maybe wyverns. Um, I mean, chaos if you the figure as a whole, a if you look at it, that many years, he's only been in the position come by the end of the world for about 10 years. Yeah. And during that time, most of his time is spent studying. For all he is an absolute freaking badass, the actual number of times that he has taken to the field is probably low. So the answer to that would be, if you were, for example, doing your own game, as many times as you feel is appropriate for the Pope to go to battle. Yeah. Uh, the one we know about is that big fight against the Chaos Lord on the over the River Talibek, which he, pr knowing how Warhammer goes, yeah. he probably killed the Chaos Lord himself. Oh, because that's just how it goes. Yeah. yeah. Does the Great Griffin, Griffin slow down Volkmar's aging? Probably. Yeah, if you're going by your standard Warhammer lore and by the discussion that we had earlier as to what it probably is, the answer is probably. Um, uh, most magic in Warhammer, to a degree, does slow aging in some fashions. There are some wizards that are over 200 years old in the Empire. Um, they've been there since the very beginning of the formation of the colleges and were there beforehand because they joined up. Many of them were already old when they joined. Yep. Uh, what was the most dangerous conspiracy against the Empire Volkmar managed to uncover and how did he eliminate it? Uh, so in the older lore, he is credited with dealing with Von Horseman, but that's no longer the case. Yeah, um, that being said, if you are playing modern War Warhammer lore, that means you're going to play the enemy within, which Volkmar can be a very important character involved with that if you choose for him to be. He certainly will be in my one. Yeah, which he should because he's if you want him to become the Grand Theogenist. Volkmar! Yeah, because he's so, yeah. Volkmar and he's awesome. Go catch up with all my Lawhammer episodes. You're going to see him he's there. In, he's in uh, in the printed books. I want to say he's either in Power Behind the Throne or he's in the last book. I forget which one. Yeah, the last book, Empire and Ruins. Um, okay, so yeah, he's uh, in Empire and Ruins. I'll, I'll be interested to, uh, in fact, he might be before that because um, in the uh, version of it that I wrote, um, he makes his first appearance in Power Behind the Thrones, but that, uh, Power Behind the Throne, but that might not be the case here. I know, yeah, I know he's in, I want to say he's in Power Behind the Throne. Um, yeah, he might be. I, I haven't read the printed when, one, when so I don't his, know. Like, you get his profile and his picture and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's see. So uh, if you choose to do that, then the Purple Hand incident, he would be pretty heavily involved with. And 100% will be part of my campaign because yeah. I freaking love good old Voltmar. Yeah. Uh, he also, if you read the Swords of Justice series, he's also tied into that whole business with the new electric counter Averland, which has to do with a slash cult. Of course. Of course. Uh, let's see. Uh, is Volkmar as pure in his service to Sigmar as he appears to be in the public or does he have his own sins and vices he has to tackle? Uh, I'd say he has a vice of obsession. Um, extremely yeah. unhealthy obsession. Yeah. Um, um, so I, I'm going to loosely step over the mark and say that he is a bad grand theogenist. Um, look at what he does. His job is to administer to the biggest cult in the empire. What he actually does Me too, is worry about the end of the world, obsess about the end of the world, and when he's meant to be doing his job, he reads books. So, does that make him a good grand theogenist? No. Is he doing things that are arguably sinful? Arguably. Is he administering to his cult? No. Is his cult going wild doing its own things because he's not being a good leader? Yes. So the answer to your question is not a very good Grand Theogenist, but arguably a good warrior priest. 
And what's Mandatus saying there? Good. I look forward to your Leopold meeting. If you haven't watched any of my streams, Leopold is a priest of Sigmar in our game. Oh, he's so also good. a prophet of Sigmar who is blind. And, and now he fills that part. Um, and uh, yeah, it will be a very interesting meeting. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm so excited about that. Um, because um, they are, I think, both heading towards very similar conclusions as to what is uh, occurring. Indeed, it's very possible that someone like Leopold could be the instigating uh, mark for Volkmar becoming so obsessed with the end of the world. Mm. All right, we're going to try and do some rapid fires here. Uh, if if Volkmar was going to fall to a chaos gun, you got to choose which one. Who would you pick? Slanesh. Mm, oh, obsessed. yeah. It's obsessed. Yeah. yeah. It's Slanesh. I would be in the exact same boat. Yep. It would, it would be a very different form of Slanesh than a lot of people get to see, which would make it extra it, exciting. He is a perfect example of someone who is falling to Slanesh, and you might not realize it. Uh, I've always been bummed by the way Volkmar went out in the end times. Uh, what do you think would be a fitting in for the Grand Theogenist? I, I'm fine with him dying in Sylvania and end up becoming Nagash. I think it's an appropriate end for him in that it's very dark and has a lot of important themes, but it should have been a way bigger war. Um, and it should also have been better foreshadowed. There should have been things about his youth leading towards potentially that. Um, most of his story is all about chaos and dealing with chaos. So ultimately, if you're looking to tell the tale of him, his conclusion is facing against chaos and possibly failing, possibly something else. But my preference would have been for him to give his life purposefully to ultimately create the uh, champion of light because that's what he was obsessing over, realizing that it isn't him and it has to be someone else and realizing that it is someone else and that he, no matter how devout he is, can never be that thing for one reason or you another. Know, honestly, Why maybe instead of a big war, ended. maybe instead of a big war, I would have really enjoyed a plot with showing Manfred as a genuinely good schemer and Manfred actually luring Volkmar out with, knowledge on the warrior of light and chaos with manfred could genuinely know and them actually having discussions that leads to volkmar making a deal yeah. with manfred volkmar having to make really difficult decisions i think is a better story than volkmar just having a scrap losing and getting turned into a big bad guy it was um i i have no issue with it per se i think that story if told well would be a really cool story um, I just don't feel it's the best use of Volkmar, who is quite clearly an, a chaos character in terms of where his character is supposed to be targeted towards at the end. Uh, what is Volkmar's greatest achievement? And that's a good one. Um, oh. Becoming a theogenist, you could argue. Um, yeah. Um, honestly, I would say probably tying all the dots together about this particular end times and understanding certain prophecies. He gets really close to being hundred like on the mark yeah um volkmar is one of the few figures in the warhammer world who is doing again i don't want to keep on saying lawhammer but uh, lawhammer game is all about people who realize the end of the world is coming at least that's one aspect of it that's how it appears to be at least and he's one of the few people that realize the end of the world is coming so you could argue that is by far his greatest achievement but he's at the top of the cult and he does fuck all with it he leads the empire more than the emperor and does he actually resolve it he does not. So I would say that he may have had access to the knowledge, but he did not use it well. Yeah, no. Um, let's see. Uh, has Volkmar ever met Luther Huss? Yes. Uh, we already talked about that. Uh, we talked about... Uh, that's where some of his key knowledge may have come from as well, because Luther Huss is a prophet of Sigmar. Yeah. Uh, we talked about his parentage and all that. Uh, the Hindenstern family. 
yeah. we talked about what he did before then. Um, oh, that's kind of an actually interesting question. Oh, that's uh-huh. kind of actually a very interesting question. So, the um, who is this? Uh, Jiki asks. So, in the concept of things like the uh, the lore of Hish, often making yep. people more intelligent or sharper. Yes. Would that make priests on average more intelligent? And would that make Volkmar smarter than he naturally was? See, priests are a complicated thing. They are not just uh, manifesting Hish. There is a great deal more to it because of the emotional connections that are built with the gods. So um, would your average priest be in a position where uh, enlightenment, intelligence, everything that Hish represents, be an influence? Absolutely, yes. Um, And could you argue that many of them would come out far colder because of this? Because uh, the emotions that are associated with Hish are actually almost the opposite. There are a lack of emotions, cool and calm. Um, Arguably, again, yes. But these are just influences upon them that are part of a far greater whole so i would say in general influence only yep uh just kind of bursting through a couple of these uh what was volkmar and gelt's relationship uh volkmar is seen to be quite a friendly terms with the colleges yeah. of magic i imagine they I wouldn't be friends but they would probably be very strong allies especially yeah. if they were both staunch supporters of Karl Franz. they yeah. both were very pro-empire they both worked together a lot um so I mean, um, I mean, if he had any brain, he'd hate Gelt, but, you know, I'll, I'll let him off. <laughs> one day, one day we'll, we'll delve into that, that mysterious, that mysterious hatred there. Uh, no, Volkmar does not hate w- wizards. He views them as critically important. Uh, he was yeah. very pro-wizard, which very got rare. him quite a bit of flack from the, the cult of Sigmar. Yeah, he's rare. Um, let's see. Uh, skipping. Okay, we already answered all these. We answered all these. Um, uh, half crown is Volkmar considered conservative or a radical reformist by Sigmarite standards? Okay, by Sigmarite standards, he is considered um pretty radical. Um, ma- the majority of the Sigmarites uh go by standard Sigmarite doctrine, um, that's which is really nicely explained, as I recall, inside the Storm of Chaos book of all books. Mm. Um, if you're looking for one where uh Sigmarites largely stand for defense of the empire and the borders that were created by Sigmar, it's a really loose way of starting them off. Now, does that mean that they won't take a fight to others? No, because their borders are constantly intruded upon, but they generally don't like going out with the borders. I will say that what does that mean for Kislev? They went marching out and saved Kislev. Kislev's in their borders, as far as they're concerned. Kislev's <laughs> part of the empire, it's just in rebellion, in the same way that the wasteland is just part of the empire that's in rebellion. Sigmar took that during his era ages ago so cut a long story short he's a a rebel because he believes in actually going out and fighting he's a warrior priest and a warrior priest's warrior priest in that um Mm. uh he's also doing something that no other sigmarite thinks is a good idea he is investigating chaos directly he is plumbing through all of the he is doing everything that the cult says you shouldn't do the dude is a giant heretic as far as most people are concerned with the cult of Sigmar, but he is pure enough to handle it. And he is also the only one who can say that anyone else in the cult is pure enough to handle it. So if anyone else is investigating those things, they require his permission. Uh, do I think Volkmar would have a good time fighting chaos with Nakai? Uh, genuinely, probably yes. 
Um, Volkvar would probably find the Kai as a concept very interesting of being kind of an anti-chaos jungle spirit type entity. Um, I actually think Volkmar would be very interested in the Kai um, in a lot of ways. Um, but anyway, um, okay. Super appreciated. Yeah, thank you all so much for the questions. By the way, I'm so sorry I'm having to blow through these so fast. I don't know how I was. Um, yeah, our timing went up a bit, but you know we're sitting on for a little bit longer yeah, than normal. From, uh, yeah, Sage Kentu says in the Witch Hunter tri trilogy, Matthias Tholman mentions his rapier was personally blessed by Volkmar. Is that something that he does as the Grand Theodorus on a regular basis, consecrating weapons and such? So this is um, the tension between uh, one type of Volkmar and another. One type of Volkmar is he's the Grand Theogenist at the top of the cult, and he has so many responsibilities there. So many things he has to do, which will involve going to various festivals, blessing things, speaking to representatives of other cults, speaking to the Emperor, speaking to the Grand Theogenist, doing um, embassy after embassy after embassy. The dude is a full-time diplomat. That's his job. Blessing shit from day to night to day to night. But he doesn't do that because he goes off and reads books instead. So does he do those things? Yes. Does he do them as much as he should do? I think the answer clearly is no. Yeah. Uh, Akuma King, why did Total War Warhammer change the color of Volkmar's stash? What improvements would it make to fix his campaign? I think Volkmar's campaign is fine now. I like that he's running around trying to destroy all the books in the gash. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, and it gives him something to do that's unique. Um, but uh, as far as like the colors mustache, there's actually different versions of Volkmar. Um, if you look through and you go look at the art, there are versions of him where he has a brown mustache. There are versions where he has a white mustache. It's worth mm. noting that Total War Warhammer takes place in 2501 or 2502, not 2520. Is it that early? Yeah, it takes. It starts with the oh, essentially. Is then? Yeah, wow. it, it it starts Three, with 2502. Yep, it starts with the uh, election of Karl Franz. Is the wow. is the canonical start date of the Total War trilogy? That is um that is interesting. Huh. Yeah. So uh so that's probably why he has the brown mustache. Is that yeah. when they were doing that, somebody actually had the forethought to be like, actually, he wouldn't be this old. Um, granted, the timeline of the game is very messy because there are characters that are around that shouldn't be um, for various yeah. reasons. But it's a video game, so just deal with it. Yeah, um, they, they they literally just throw characters all over the place, regardless yeah. of when. Do, do I have a lore explanation for why everyone is there? Yes. Do they all work? Some more than <laughs> others. <laughs> um. Okay. Uh. But um. Why does he wear warp stone? Most sources agree that he doesn't. Uh. Though, he if you want to believe it's weird stone, I mean, you can, but it's pretty explicitly said it's jade. Yeah, it, it's jade. Um, Which jade, and, jade uh, is a very important material within the Warhammer universe. There, it's also fair to say there's two types of jade. Um, you've got jade, as in Cathayan jade, but you also have um the crystalline representation of jade magic, which looks like jade, is often mistaken for jade, but is effectively the warp stone of the jade wind, and it's just crystallized jade magic. That's um in several different books in terms of how it uh, manifests, and it very easily could just be that. Ooh, I got a hell of a question for you here, Andy. Uh, Melisar asks, how does one match the goodness of Sigmar himself described in his books versus the corruption of his uh, faith or uh, the cult? In the setting, if a Mermidia priest breaks her vows, they lose her blessing and gifts. But if a witch hunter burns priests of a different religion mistakenly, he doesn't lose any support. Who does Volkmar believe in? Good Sigmar or the corrupt overlord looming over the cult? Okay, so he clearly believes in good Sigmar. Um, yeah, that's he why he supports us. Yeah, indeed. 
And he clearly believes um, that Sigmar is a, not just a force for good, that Sigmar is the force for good. Um, now, that comes with the realization that Sigmar was mortal, Sigmar made mistakes, and that Sigmar was bluntly infall not infallible. Um, and that is something you've got to get into your heads. He is not a conceptual entity in the same way that the gods are. He is not the perfect representation of an emotion, for example. What he is, is a perfect representation of humanity. And humanity is flawed. And that is how you can easily justify cult fuck-ups being accepted and not turning their various representatives, their clerics or equivalent, into uh, gibbering messes because they've done something wrong in Sigmar's eyes. In many respects, Sigmar is strongly influenced by the cult of Ulrich. And the cult of Ulrich, Ulrichans at their very heart believe that Ulrich himself is a freaking mess. He makes mistake after mistake. One of their core doctrines is the mistake you survive is the best teacher. And in many respects, the cult of Sigmar is nothing but the cult of Ulrich mixed with dwarfs. And that mm. being the case, it's 100% cool for them to make mistakes as long as they learn from it and never do it again. It's obviously not cool at all, but it's not going to get them excommunicated. Uh, let's see. Uh, does Volkmar have any, any unique perspectives towards other cults? Uh, I think we kind of answered that with his earlier stuff. Yeah, he does in that he, like, he believes cool. all those gods exist, but he also believes that they're inferior to Sigmar and that they're, they're all just kind of like very... He views all the other gods as lesser because how they haven't lived full lives. They don't understand the materium. How could they? They're just little I, I weirdos. As not relevant anymore to humanity. Yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. Because they're gods. It's just that Sigmar is more is better for humans. It's yep. as simple as that. That's it's a good way to put it. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Uh, would Volkmar had been okay working alongside Vlad the Chad von Karstein in the end times if Volkmar had still been around at that point? No. It's really There's some really. I, I think there are some desperate scenarios where he would have turned, been like, eh, okay, I'll kind of ignore it. But like when Vlad walks up and is like, hey, I deserve to be an elector count, I think Volkmar would have had the exact same response Sigmar does when Vlad talks to him at the end of the end times. Where Vlad would have said, hey, technically, I should be the Electric Count of Sylvania. And Volkmar would say, uh, technically, only humans can be Electric Counts, and you are not human. That's not true. Strictly. Uh, I mean, we've got half. I, I think that's what Volkmar would have argued. <laughs> he would have said, <laughs> you know, we've, not, got we've, we've, we've got Hismi Stoutheart, the Elector of uh, the Moot. Um, yeah, it would have been. Um, I think that it's those sort of discussions and those sort of difficult positions that really make characters. Um, and make for interesting stories because if you have no tension and you have no conflict then the stories are ultimately boring and i think having um uh, volkmar achieve difficult positions um would have made the story much more fascinating and not putting him in a position to have to try and either say yes or no yes means destruction of world no doesn't or whatever awfulness is a shame it would have been really nice to see a hardliner like volkmar have to come to terms with a horrendous situation and how does he cope does he choose not to cope does he take the dwarf route i will just say no and i think that's quite likely and that would make for a really fascinating story when you then have the representative of sigmar carl franz who is pretty much sitting on sigmar's throne saying yes and there that yeah. tension is beautiful 
And that's that sort of story that would have been really nice to see being told. Volkmar would have been an awesome voice in the little council of do we give Vlad Electra status so he helps us fight chaos? That would have been a that's really cool discussion for Volkmar to be a part of. Yeah, it would it would have been awful. And it's th that awfulness. Um, people having to say no to things they should say yes to or yes that they have to say no to. <laughs> yeah, that'd have been fun. Uh, uh, is Volkmar friends with R. Ulrich Emir Volgir? Um, no. I wouldn't say they're friends, but they're probably no. they no. they probably no no yeah no 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 is the answer. they like hitting a lot of the same people just because they may have many similar goals does not in any way mean that they could stand each other at all. Volkmar, I think, would be the more diplomatic of the two. Um and uh yeah. Valgir is a Valgir is a pill. Um, he's, yeah. a, he's a great character, but he is a pill. <laughs> yeah, the, the answer there would most certainly. I think I'm um, popping up the cult of Ulrich discussion. We're going to have one of those, I assume, at one at point, point in the future. Yeah. And when we discuss the cult of Ulrich, um, you remember, guys, Ulrichians are aggressive. The they are aggressive as fuck. <laughs> um, and they do not like the cult of Sigmar and what it is trying to do. Think of what um, uh, Volkmar's current concern is. Sigmar is what humanity needs. That does not chime well with the Ulricans, for I yeah. think very obvious reasons. Yeah, nothing better than the guy that walks in and says, yeah, of course your god matters. He made my god the most important god. So thank <laughs> you. <laughs> that would go over great. Yeah, um, no. Um, yeah, uh, they're, they're both too proud and too, uh, they're religious. Yeah. Um, um, take a look at the real world. Religions that are basically at heart exactly the same religion. They're exactly the same religion. What do they do? They kill each other every day. Representatives of them really getting annoyed over the tiniest, smallest little details that mean that my one's right and your one's wrong. And their deep differences between Sigmar and Ulrich are much, much wider. So, yeah, yeah. No is the answer. Yep. Uh, let's see. Who would win... <laughs> Who would run in an arm wrestling contest, Volkmar or R. Ulrich? Volkmar, R. It'd be R. Ulrich, unless he was sitting on the uh, Jade. Yeah, uh, on the war altar. Yeah, yeah. The, if, uh, if the war altar was the stage, Volkmar's got that. And, in and the he was bag. holding his car, <laughs> and he was channeling all the magic. Yeah, I think, I think that would count as cheating, though. <laughs> uh, I, I will say, I believe Volkmar's a fair bit older than R. Ulrich, not by like a ton, but I think he's like a good 10, 20 years older. <laughs> Oh, good old Matthew Lillard. Um, uh, he's, uh, you you kind of look like Matthew Lillard in the new movie. Now that you mention um, it. That's, that's fascinating. I have, haven't seen new movie yet. Um, uh, rather amusingly, I've worked for him because um, Matthew that's Lillard awesome. is the core owner of a company that makes D&D uh, &D and other awesome, cool things. Um, uh, he's a big role player as Matthew Lillard, a big D&D &D player. And I worked for their company to help produce one of the critical role special maps that they had so mm -hmm. it was a big map of where critical role goes and they did a special edition of it their company's called beetles and grim and beetles and grim which is part owned by matthew lillard employed me so yeah i, I worked for him which is that's a, very cool a, a unexpected zoinks moment mentioned you do look a lot like him in the new movie that's actually really funny i i, I have indeed once dressed up as shaggy for fancy dress well now uh, you can dress up as william uh, after it'll be great you could be you could be, be a good old murderer <laughs> i'm cool with that uh let's see 
So what would happen if Volkmar wielded Galmaraz since he's a direct descendant of Sigmar? Uh, being directly related doesn't get story. Uh, it would make for a fun story, especially because the story of Karl Franz, one of my favorite, we don't have time for it, but one of my favorite things about that story is it implies that unlocking the full power of Galmaraz takes something special. It's not just a, you pick it up and it's awesome. There's more to it than that. That would have been a fun story is my answer. Yeah. But we did get it. Yep. Um, we might in Lawhammer. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, of course, is Volkmar going to show up in Lawhammer? Yes. It seems that way. Uh, I'm, so, no I'm so excited. Volkmar will appear in Lawhammer. Yeah. Which, hey, uh, that brings us to the end of our show. Uh, hey! a perfect, a perfect tie-in of go watch Lawhammer. Uh, they just finished <laughs> part two of the five-part epic that is The Enemy Within. Uh, it was an explosive finale that was hilarious because of how many stupid dice rolls ended up happening at the end. Uh, I thought they were never going to get out of that bullshit. <laughs> Me too. I was surprised they did. Yep. Uh, the amount of people that fell into water to help someone and then started <laughs> suffering horribly uh, and then needing to be rescued by someone else was truly tragic. Um, also make sure to, uh, so go subscribe over to the law hammer. I think they're at the uh, three point. I will bring this up. If you want Queek, there is a way to get the Queek video that good old Sotek has been building. It's for ready the to last go guys. 94 years. It's ready to go. <laughs> it, it's good to hit your screens, but it won't hit until the law hammer YouTube channel has 5k subscribers. Now we're currently sitting at about 3.5. So that means if everybody who watches this video goes over and clicks subscribe on that channel, then we will have enough to have Queek released. That's all you need to do. So pop over to the Lawhammer channel, click subscribe, and Queek will arrive. Yep, I, I've even secured Andy as a voice actor for a part of it. <laughs> it's going to be really silly yes! uh so in any event um go check out lawhammer subscriber there go check out the rookery they just had their 100th episode it was actually really sweet to watch yeah. um yeah if you want to see me looking like an idiot and makeup um you should go over to lawhammer right now um not lawhammer probably the rookery channel right now and um see me looking like an idiot yesterday it was good times yep and if for some reason you're here and haven't subscribed yet please do uh, I, I appreciate the support uh thank you all very much for watching talking about Volkmar was a lot of fun there's a lot of really weird interesting little things about him and uh i actually learned a couple of things that i was really excited to learn about i like i it did not occur to me that to check into the uh Hindenstern's. so that yeah. actually Hindenstern. connects a lot of dots into how Volkmar developed as a child into an adult let me just bring up that one and say it has been an actual exercise <laughs> <laughs> oh, i'm so itchy Thanks, so, breather writer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, okay, Andrew. Okay, I, there's a genuine answer to this question. Oh, okay. Yep. To drive you guys a little harder, what happens after the 5K? Well, there's a 10K milestone, and yes, I, uh, we, I'll go ahead and tell you what it is, just because oh, I'm trying. A moment. <clears throat> yeah. So, if we hit 10K subs on the Lawhammer channel, not only will you have Queek at 5K, but we will do a special stream just for y'all. At 10k subs, which will be Balthazar Gelt. Gelt at 10k. <laughs> oh, I'm looking forward to laying into that gold face. <laughs> we will we will full on be blasting uh everyone's favorite uh fortunate son song <laughs> and go hardcore into Balthazar Gelt 
once 10k shows up on Lawhammer. He won't show up in any polls. It, it's it's an unlockable nope. achievement. It is indeed an unlockable achievement. <laughs> so uh, if you want that to happen, which we all do, because it's going to be amazing, you're going to get to see Andy go full rage and me trying to defend a, a, a character from that I, rage. It'll be indefensible. Yeah, it'll be something special. <laughs> so maybe I'll, I may even dress up as Gelt just to try and drive. No! <laughs> no! As, as we all will be uh, welcoming to Astalia. So uh, thank you all so much for watching. Uh, I got a bounce. Uh, we both got a bounce. It's my mother's birthday. So I'm going to go uh, celebrate. Oh, happy birthday, your mom. I, I will let her know. And uh, next week, Lahama Channel, we're doing Mermidia. Don't miss it because Mermidia is going to be freaking awesome. One of my mm. favorite goddesses in the entire setting. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm very excited to talk about Mermidia. There's a lot of really fascinating shit in there. So uh, thank you all. And we'll see you next Sunday on the Lahama Channel. See Bye -bye. ya. Bye.